Welcome to the Five Phenomenon Podcast. I am your host, Shane Hazen, and back with me again, Ted Haycraft. Tilford Haycraft. Tilford Haycraft. Uh, Today we are going to be discussing Mike Nichols' audio commentaries, all three of which from uh, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, The Graduates, and Catch-22 are with writer-director Steven Soderbergh. But first off, Ted, what did you watch this week? Anything interesting? Uh, Well, I've... Wrapped up WandaVision and then... Um, WandaVision! Did you enjoy it, the wrap-up? I did. Okay, that's good. I, I, I feel bad because I've talked to a few friends who um, have typically no interest in a, Mar- a MCU movie or story and were loving it because of the sitcom parody aspects to it and really got into it for there. And I felt bad because it's like, oh, you, you had to know it was going to end like a giant CGI video game MC- MCU movie. But yeah, I no, I really liked it. I saw one take online... Going to a conversation you and I have had multiple times, and not to go down this rabbit hole, but it almost seemed like this is the MCU movie to disprove Marvel or uh, Martin Scorsese's. This isn't cinema. This isn't emotional. Yeah. Even though it's TV, it's literally not cinema. Well, you know, anyway. I'm, you know, was is Tower Inferno and uh, and Poseidon Adventure cinema? Uh, it played 24 frames a second in a, <laughs> on a through a film projector, so I like to think that the whole argument of this wasn't was a, more about high low argument or just personal preference. I just I just I, I, did you read his Fellini essay yes. that just came out? Oh yeah, content yeah. I, that I can get behind him yeah, complaining just, about content. I just I can he, find he, that. I, and I I wonder if I if I could corner him in a corner and then go. Did you really? Did you really want to use the word cinema? I'm hoping he would say, "Yeah, that was a mistake." The whole problem, which just say we, one we, word to we've, me. Yeah, exactly. We've detailed this multiple times on here before. The problem was is him being this uh, kind of in pop culture an arbiter of high low, and so when he says something isn't cinema, you get mad because like he's the defender of low cinema uh, on top of high high. He, low. He, of everything, I mean, he did he did the intro to Tim Lucas's Mario Baba book. I mean, he shows up everywhere, you know, endorsing all kinds of. Uh, Amazing, wonderful, he, he, weird the, stuff. I mean, Sam Fuller's so so much in his DNA. Yeah, like, he just, it's it's a it's obnoxious. But anything else you watched this week? I saw a couple of films the theater. Uh, I've actually saw quite a few of the theater last week and this week. But this week was uh, Judas and the Black Messiah. You saw that finally? Yes, uh, I liked it a lot. Uh, I I need to see it again. I I was I was unfortunately watching it when I was distracted, but um, it is clearly an exceptionally great movie. Yeah, there's a, and there's a, it's a lot. Yeah, I almost want to watch it now with subtitles because there's a lot of dialogue going flying by. There is a uh, podcast I think on Spotify with uh, hosted by Elvis Mitchell going off the real life details of the of the behind the scenes of uh, Fred Hampton. Yeah, kind of an interesting uh, little bit of a uh, uh, speaking of MCO crossover, a little bit of a crossover with the Chicago Seven. The tri- the tri- oh God, uh, sure. Yeah, the, <laughs> hey, I'm a continuity boy. Uh, uh, t- t- crossovers and team ups. <laughs> I'm a child of Roy Thomas and Stan Lee. Um, but, uh, anyway, and then, uh, the other one I saw was, I, I'm going to butcher this, the Jodie Foster film. Uh, can you, you said you were on cinema chat. You already butchered I, this. I, butchered it. I just it, haven't seen this. I don't know. It's, 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 a, it's a, it's a name of a, it's a person that's from this country, the Manonurian. Manonurian? Something like that. I, 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 I just don't anyway, know the I just, title. It's, the, it's the one Jodie Foster got in the Golden Globe for. Uh, First question I had for you, does she deserve her Golden Globe? It, I don't 
I wouldn't. Vote. Is this a twenty twenty Mulligan year? <laughs> it's uh, she's fine. She does a good great job. But the actor who plays this detainee in Gitmo uh, is great, and he's wonderful, and he's and he's fun to watch. Uh, and uh, he, he, he's one of those actors you just look to see his uh, what he what he chooses is for reaction and talking and and gesturing and. Um, and and uh, he's really good, and uh, it's really interesting stuff at the end. And be sure to stay to the end credits because uh, there's a nice little wonderful surprise. I had a happy cry at the mm. but I don't I don't know if I really want to spoil that. I but, well, you told me earlier. Yeah. I think you shouldn't spoil it. That is not. one. I yeah. think that is one you shouldn't spoil. No, it, 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 it did tell. If you stay, it but Chinese. you gotta stay because there's a lot of early. It goes on. A lot of interesting stuff goes on in the end credits. Uh, tag wise, that my, you should say watch. My only interesting viewing of the week was uh, I've unlocked a Criterion Channel for the Father Goose episode from a few episodes back, and I watched uh, Ghost of Peter Sellers. Which, when I told you I had watched that, your first comment was, "Did you watch the end credits?" Because <laughs> because I helped crowdfund that. Yeah, yeah, and it was. Uh, I'm I'm glad it was. But but true to typical Ted fashion, have you seen the movie yet? Yeah, no, yeah. Well, oh, oh, you have. The minute I got it, uh, that's, uh, okay. I, it was very long wait I for. Thought it. I had you there. No, it took for, it took a long time, but the minute it came in the, uh, the through the door, I watched it, and wow, it's uh, that's this talk about I, a director just kind of like. Uh, this is a documentary about the making of a shelved movie called The Ghost in the Noonday Sun. That um, I, The reason I heard about this is Edgar Wright has really been pushing this documentary, but it's uh, basically about Peter Sellers being a chaotic personality. Total to pain in the butt in the, a major way. One of my favorite is like uh, the circle of directors who told stories about uh, directing him. Yeah. Yeah, and then yeah. it opens with that. Or there, earlier in the beginning, there's that, that press conference where he talks about... Uh, He's only worked with a few great directors. And I'm thinking, okay, he's got Blake Edwards and Kubrick on the line. He's just shitting on everyone else? Well, yeah. It's, and again, it's like it's a lot of, a lot of these these giant high-profile comedians that are – they're just – they can be tapped for genius-level work. But when you start looking at their over-career – there's a lot of crud uh, in it. In it's, Spike Milligan's also big into this. You know one story about Spike Milligan I love that doesn't get enough play? You know what the epitaph on Spike Milligan's grave is? Oh, you're. I'm going to know it once you say it because I think I've, uh, I'm pretty much... Well, it's in like this... Uh, I think it's in this Celtic language or something, but it translates to, I told you I was sick. <laughs> <laughs> that's typical Spike. Spike, because he's a Richard Lesser favorite, and the fact, sure. the fact that I mean that's the most goofiest thing in the Three Musketeers that he, Spike shows up in that thing. I and, and that's one I want to ask. I want to talk to Richard Lesser about casting him because it's such a out of out of the weird, you know. But casting, this but, is but it, not a Richard I, Lester episode. Oh, okay. We we've hit our Richard Lester <laughs> moratorium. Uh, so we, when I first messaged you about doing this, I said specifically on commentaries, on Mike Nichols' commentaries, and it was it was a messenger response, and you were like, what is it specifically we're doing about it? And I had a moment of hesitation where I thought, well, shit, are we going to have enough to talk about? I currently have more notes to talk about right now than I've ever had for any episode. I mean, this is basically a gateway for us to talk about. Both of you and I are taken by one of our finest film writers, Mark Harris's new book, uh, Mike Nichols' Biography. And, and please mention the, the previous two books, too, because those were great. The Oh, uh, Pictures at a Revolution and Five Came Back. Yeah, yeah I mean, I've mentioned my last episode, a yeah. few episodes back, but with again, why he's one of our greatest, our greatest film writers. Or he's just a, such a pleasurable... And, 
and well, it was funny because when I first saw that his the he was writing a Mike Nichols book, it was like five days before publication, and for some reason, in anticipation of this book, I immediately went to oh. I should read that book that came out last year, uh, which was an oral history called Life Isn't Everything, which it's solid. It's it's not, but it, the Mark Harris book really covers a lot, most everything else into it. Yeah, and and the Mark Harris books, I, I feel all three of them, I, they're, these are, uh, I don't know, recently, I've just had, I've, I've had these feelings, and he, he taps it where I, I don't want to finish the book. I want the book just, I'm, I'm so, he, it's, it, 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 the pacing and the info and the way he writes and, and what he brings, his insight to it. I just don't want him to finish. I, I, I get sad because uh, they're so, such a fun, great read. And of course, with the five pictures, one of the pictures is the graduates. Right. So kind of got a little bit of a warm up for this biography he did. But yeah, but what's really strange is that I was, I just out of the blue, just kind of casually, I don't know what. I think it's prompting because I'm I'm working on my library in my house and trying to get it organized. Mm-hmm. And I'm coming across a lot of things. Well, I need to. I like to watch this, and I've slowly started doing a Mike Nichols. Uh, run. This is this is a great excuse to go through a Mike Nichols rewatch. And and then now with the book coming out, I mean, I'm actually even more deeper to the fact that I'm going to finish off all his films. And and the good thing about Nichols' uh, filmography, you can do it in, in a reasonable amount of time, and not you know you know like as opposed to John Ford or something, you know where. It, it would be what was frustrating for me was my rewatch was um, it started with the big first three. It was I have actually never seen Catch Twenty Two, and I watched. And what's funny is I bought Catch Twenty Two the DVD the week it came out. It was like uh, March two thousand one. Did you buy it because of Soderbergh? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I bought it because of the Soderbergh. I know everybody because uh, I was going to do a. What, I was funny because I literally had the hubris to think I was going to read the book. Watch the movie and then write our uh, our magazine news for you. I was going to write an article on it within like about six days, and then twenty years later, I finally got around to the movie, which we were going to talk about that movie because that is that movie is something. Um, but I watched that, then I watched The Graduate again, which I mean I've seen periodically throughout the years. And I think I ended up writing the article on The Graduate because uh, when I went to the EPK that on the disc I had, the dialogue was super familiar, and it was a two thousand one circa EPK. And then Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, which I watched right after seeing Malcolm and Marie because I wanted to watch a black and white house-based couple fight movie. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, it, yeah, and then it, and then for our, this episode, I had to rewatch all three again for the commentaries. Yeah. I, that was, I, like I said, I was kind of – without knowing it, it's just for, uh, fortuitous. I was just slowly ramping up into a Nichols uh, film festival uh, over the last couple of years, and then I started speeding up, and then the, the book came out. Uh, I did another thing. You asked me what I watched this week. I watched the, for the first time. There's a few I hadn't seen. I still haven't seen them, Nichols. I th- I thought I'd pretty much seen them all, but I, and I remember when it was out in the theaters. I remember the ads and and it had a science fiction angle to it. Uh, what planet Dolphin. are you from? The, no, the day for the day of the dolphin. You hadn't seen Day of the Dolphin. I never seen Day of the Dolphin. I because I, I I saw in Letterbox you saw that and uh, I watched it this week myself. I got a, I got the Blu-ray in. And, I I, uh, ca- I kind of wanted to push it to later, but let's go ahead. Day of the Dolphin. What uh, <laughs> what did you think? Well, I I liked it. I mean, okay. Uh, and I, I but I could see the problem. It, it kind of just like it, the ending is just like uh, let's just end it. <laughs> I mean, well, and, I, and I forgot. I want to go back to the book and see what Harris. Uh, because I know there's a it's a really interesting portion. You haven't read that part of the book. Oh, yet? No, no, I have. Oh well, yeah. But you want to go I, back. There's some, here's the thing about we're we're gonna be talking about the commentaries in the Harris book. It's there's so much richness 
that I almost can't retain it all. It's almost within two days later, I'm forgetting it, unless I write notes The, the book really treats him... There was a quote Soderbergh had, not in any of the commentaries, but I think in his book, whenever he was going to be directing his first play, he was getting notes from Mike Nichols, and he's like, that's like talking about basketball to Michael Jordan. Like, he is... <laughs> He, he, this book really pushes this thing that, especially when it came to Broadway and New York stage, he was, he's just kind of a go-to of directing, uh, uh, actor directing off stage in New York. Yeah, and the, sta- the stage part. See, that's there's that's a whole, that's almost like a parallel uh, trajectory. You got to take get taken a, uh, in in the book has all movie. the great stuff of Barefoot in the Park yeah. and how revolutionary the opening act was and his staging of it was. Well, I was reading another chapter today where. Uh, getting the birdcage going mm-hmm. and it was kind of also it was an interesting kind of a payback because he got fired from a play by um, oh crap uh, I can't think of the, the, the big time producer uh, and I had to go so I, I went back to that section in the book to reread him getting fired from that play because I probably you know zipped through that portion and I go oh okay yeah this guy he he he, he had let go of Nichols he let go of the, everybody that was working up at this uh, Saint, I don't uh, remember this part. Yeah, it was uh, yeah, and um, so then I so I went back to then read that so I could see. Oh, okay, he'd been sitting on the uh, the Lacage Fall script. He had been sitting. On oh for a while. yes, yeah. I do. Yeah. yeah, no, it was like a musical. He got fired off yeah. of. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, so really. it, so it, it, that's how rich the book is, and 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 so much and so much information. I do yeah, want to finish yeah. off the Day of the Dolphin just to tie it. Oh, yeah. uh, Day of the Dolphin started as a Polanski project, yeah. which seems so weird. The problem with Day of the Dolphin for me has always been in the foundation, like a, a, a thriller about training dolphins. It just seems so... Like every once in a while you get a, a big artist like does a silly idea and they make it work. This is one of those ones where it just still seems fundamentally silly. Well, the, you know, they, they radically changed the plot, what the Dolphins were going to do, cause. I think, I think I did see that. And I think the, the book also makes the point that the poster reveals what happens in the sec- the big twist in the second hour. And, and uh, also the fact that this is an Afro Embassy Joseph E. Levine movie. Mike had a contract to do two movies, so yeah, he, he, he was the had a problem. The first one, yeah. yeah, he had a problem. He finally, it was almost like he was like, oh, let's just do this one. Well, Catch-22, which maybe this is a good thing to segue into Catch-22, is strangely a, you know, high budget, which Nichols did. Nichols movies involved a high, his quote was always made movies bigger budget. But this was such a big ticket, big ambitious production. They had like, they said at one point it was like they had the sixth biggest air force in the world <laughs> and, and the, the, the airfield in Mexico that they shot on. Yeah. Although... The commentary details one of the most fascinating aspects, which I didn't really realize till that commentary viewing is they started shooting with extras filling the air and they got rid of them. So it's just a bunch of characters isolated around this giant airfield with a bunch of planes. And, and when you find that out, you go, you agree with Mike and Stoddard. You go, yeah. Oh yeah. This makes this work. I, mean, I could, I could only imagine if they had the normal extras of a normal air for, uh, airfield, it would, it would just distract and be distracting and noisy and, uh, and everything. Uh, so that was really interesting that they said that. Uh, I, I, of course, you got the stories 
of Watkins. Oh, uh, you're Richard Lester oh, favorite, Lester, David yeah. Watkins, well, which yeah. Soderbergh at one point says this is one of the most beautiful shot films ever. And you gotta, you gotta oh, agree yeah. with them. They made, he made the point they were only gonna, sh- they were gonna back lot and everything, so they only shot for a few hours. Which, Two o'clock, three o'clock. Which I've worked on movies where you mostly backlight everything, and you don't have to shoot for three hours a day. Yeah. That is, that is a, that is a very long leash you give your cinematographer it, yeah they were giving him they were letting him you know have his day shooting but and, and mike but even mike says but i loved him he's you know he was eccentric you loved the guy and and it was so there well one, on the bigger ticket item version of this uh this in the commentary they talk about this being the second really big movie to use front projection after 2001 for the plane scenes and it shows they're they're amazing looking and then there's or there's those parts in the when they do like tiny special effects, which are really in camera something like there's a plane crash that he describes as Soderbergh. <laughs> like, and I mean, you watch it multiple times and the, 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 I even, he said they use front projection on the thing that happens before that. I guess we're, we're, we're these are comments. We're ta- not even talking about the movies. We're talking about the commentary. So we're spoiling some of this, but when the plane cr- uh, cuts the guy off, yes. they said they use rear projection on it. I, the first time when I watched it, that was the only time I stopped the movie and watched that frame by frame, and it was like I don't know how they did that, but it looks so good. Yeah, of course you know you see the frame line, you see the uh, uh, on the high def. I didn't. I didn't see that. Uh, I, I had. Well, what, did you? I watched the DVD coming. Well, even the, on, my, on my DVD, I could see the uh, the bat line. Uh, really? Yeah. Whereas you know, back when I saw it, I don't know. I, I have a. I have. I can't. I have a foggy memory of what I saw and what I didn't see the theater and TV. But I remember, you know, you would have never saw that when you saw it in the theater or drive-in or But you think TV. you did see Catch-22 in the theater? I might have saw, so I, I don't know, maybe. Do we need to go through the, I mean, it's such an iconic book and um, that I've never read or only seen until recently, but do we need to go through the plot of Catch-22? Um, it's about a pilot. Go, who, yeah, go ahead. The Catch Twenty Two is about a pilot who keeps getting his mission number put uh, pushed up. So he decides he wants to say that he's cr- get out of doing those missions. He finds a clause that says if he's crazy, he doesn't have to do that. But if he declares himself crazy, that means he's sane, so that he's going to have to still continue. Yeah, and any sane person would be crazy. Not that he wouldn't want to do that. Fly. And, and the structure they have for the movie is that they they extend the big montage sequence in the middle of the graduates, so that every transition of the scenes in Catch Twenty Two connects, even though it's all a fever dream coming from. Yosari and the main character, the main pilot played by Alan Arkin. It's well, non-linear. Buck, you know, Buck, it's a non-linear. Yeah, yeah. Buck, Buck, uh, yeah, Buck comes in, uh, to... Uh, but it's written by Buck Henry. Yeah, uh, after he had worked Two with of them these three movies are written by... So yeah. back to back. So Buck comes up to uh, Mike and says, I want, why don't we try this as just oh, like our montage sequences? This film's just one giant montage. And uh, it's pretty... Uh, it, it, it holds its own. But Soderbergh said, you know, in the, in the commentary, Soderbergh goes, that puts you in a trap when you come to post-production. It's very tricky. As an editor, yeah. uh, you, when you look at scripts sometimes when they have very clever transitions, yes, movies and theories are a transition. The problem is transitions always have to feel organic to a certain extent. And so a lot of the great transitions are figured out in post-production. And if you tie yourself, the thing you cut off most in movies are beginnings and ends of scenes. Like there's there's a tendency when you're filming something, you always film someone walking in a room and uh, and exiting a room at the end of a scene. Cause, and what's William Goldman said is the phrase of get in a scene as late as possible and get out as early as possible. I remember listening to a, a Spielberg interview where he said 
this late in the game, he's talking about Bridge of Spies, and he's like, even this late in the game, I'm still having to remind myself I don't need to watch someone grab a door handle to open a door to enter the room. But he, he's been this late into his career. He's a cinematic yeah. genius, and he still films this stuff. Yeah, it's uh, uh, it, it, I should we should say we're right off the bat with this uh, Catchaway Two since we're starting with that and Soderbergh. So the, the fact when this came out and and it was Steven Soderbergh sitting down with Mike Nichols and uh, Mike copying to errors and mistakes and doubts he had was just revolutionary in terms of audio commentaries. It's still, to this day, I think it's probably the best commentary Catch-22. It's probably the most fun and interesting. There might, I mean, there might be some better ones since then. I mean, everybody's doing them now, you know. Uh, uh, Which Soderbergh really kind of... But, uh, well, yeah, first, you have, you have a top-class filmmaker, and you keep the director prompting. Because I've heard, you know, there's been other directors' commentaries who go, well, there's a Chevy Ford we used, and it's pulling out of the driveway. You know, and you're just like, oh, uh, you know. Yeah. Um, and so you got the and um, it's just, uh, it, I, even, I watched it again just, uh, this week, just for this. Uh, well, the problem with Ma- with uh, Catch-22 is always that Nichols talked about was MASH ended up, they took so long on Catch-22 in such a big production, MASH ended up beating yeah, it. Yeah, I'd, I'd be curious if, if MASH hadn't been out, would have would have been a hit. I don't know. What I, if, you think? I don't know. I, it's a, it's, it's, it, Nichols d- is, it keeps talking about on that commentary and it takes up the both books that he keeps uh, pointing out his flaws just because it was, you know, he was on such a high streak with, uh, be, you know, nominated for best director on his first two movies for Oscar. Yeah, I mean, th- and, th- but no, this movie's great, but I, I get what he's saying because it's a big, ambitious book that you could probably, like, there's a new a miniseries that came out, what, two years ago uh, that George Clooney and Grant Hessoff worked on, and there's just different ways you can do this, and he was, was the first, and he didn't nail it, so you you get that, but it's still a great movie. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's it's uh, yeah. Really interesting. There's, there's so many different. Beautiful movie. Yeah. Uh, the, the yeah yeah just to watch it on a technical level. Uh, you got your uh, the Orson Welles fans have to watch oh, it. Oh God, we're gonna. Go. <laughs> uh, you got you know uh, like I said, you got him coming off uh, Buck Henry and him coming off The Graduate, and he's coming off the Virginia Woolf and The Graduate. Uh, there's just so many, and then the, uh, uh, Art Garfunkel. So I think it's his first part. It's his first part. Uh, yeah, because they 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 had a bond from using the music on The Graduate. Graduate, right? There's just so much, and again, the commentary. I just can't uh, 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 tell you folks because like like recent commentaries, I sometimes they're just. Uh, uh, guys just rattling off the IMBD credits well, when me, an actor walks in. Let me go through a list of Soderbergh's commentaries. His own commentaries are generally pretty illuminating. He's willing to admit uh, thoughts on what doesn't and doesn't work. Our favorite, you and I mutually, is the Limey the Lim, with Lim Dobbs, the screenwriter. He loves to do a lot of them with the screenwriters. So he's done Out of Sight with Scott Frank, Traffic with Stephen Gagain, uh, the Sex Lies and Videotape one he does with the playwright Neil Labute. Solaris is a great one, which he does with his producer on that because it was Lightstorm that produced it, James Cameron. Uh, back to the Writers, Ocean's Elevens with Ted Griffith, Ocean's 12, this is George Nolfi, Ocean's 13 with Brian Copeman and David Levine, The Informant, it's with Scott Burns, Full Frontals with screenwriter Coleman Hughes, and then The Girlfriend Experiences with star, porn star Sasha Gray. But then we get to all the great commentaries he's done on either classic movies with somebody else or are with, what were you going to say, Ted? No, uh, before you go to the next, next list, didn't he? I thought he did one Neil little boot on the underneath. That that sounds right. Yeah, because yeah. it's a Criterion. I, I well, it's no, it actually, can, I think it's no, 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 no. It's on um, the, it's on the the um, um, what's the uh, uh King of the Hill? It's underneath is on King of the Hill. The is, underneath is on the King of the Hill disc. Really? Yeah. 
Oh, okay. Um, I so I guess I haven't really seen that comment or heard that commentary. I mean, I'm, I'm just thinking. I thought Neil Obit did a couple with him, but anyway. So we'll have to check that out. Get back, uh, we'll get back with you guys. One of my favorites <laughs> uh, that he did was uh, the Third Man with Tony Gilroy, and what's amazing about that one is it came out. At least I rented it to watch the commentary the week Michael Clayton came out. And there's this great point when they get to the last shot of Third Man, which is a really iconic long last shot. And they talk about the power of last shots. And one of my favorite final shots, long last shots of all time, one of the most emotional, great, my favorite endings of the movie ever is Michael Clayton, which hmm. came out that I'll have week. to go while we watch that now. They talk about long last shots. Uh, he does Point Blank with John Borman. He did Seabiscuit with Gary Ross. One I just found out about that I'm really curious, The Yards with James Gray. Hmm. He does Day Trippers with Greg Matola and editor Anne McCabe. Suture with David McGee and David Siegel. Apartment Zero with David Kep, which I am, uh, David Kep, the big screenwriter, I didn't know if that may be one of his early movies. Who's David Kep is also writing Soderbergh's next movie. Uh, Billy Budd with Terrence Stamp. Hmm. And Clean Shaven with Lodge Kerrigan, who he later hired to direct uh, half the episodes for season two of The Girlfriend Experience, which Soderbergh executive produced. But sorry, Soderbergh commentaries, Mike Nichols podcast, Clarity, got it. <laughs> but no, but they, yeah, they, 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 I always, I, I, people go, oh, commentary. They're, they're, you know, I, I get some people that just say nah, they're a waste of time or they're not. Who says uh, that? Uh, who says that, Ted? Uh, just some people I know. I the yeah. only the only problem I've had with commentaries lately is I need to have them. They used to be such a great thing to have on in the background, and now it's just like I need to commit. Uh, I'm trying always to commit more to one thing at a time now. So. I, I think one, I, I my initial I think my, one of my initial times with the commentary was on Laserdisc, and I remember it was frustrating a little bit because it was Taxi Driver with, with Scorsese. Such a great commentary, and. Uh, I remember the frustration was it was it was great. I mean, in one sense it was great, but in another sense it was frustrating because he went off on a tangent on Bernard Harriman at one point, and he just kept on talking about Harriman, which we, it was interesting stuff. But these great scenes were rolling by, and you wanted to hear him make some. You wanted to hear what he had to say about this scene or this scene. This becomes a problem later. I, it's not so bad. I didn't remember it being so bad in The Graduate, but Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? Like you're, they were talking about one scene, and then they would go over a monologue that's a really famous monologue. That yeah. it was more there, but. Uh, but yeah, going back to Catch Twenty Two, I, I you know the one thing, but you, know, you said the plane crash is just I love Sarkberg's reaction. It's just the greatest thing, and I even go. Really, I remember watching it. I'm like, and I had to play it back. It's yeah. so it's it's you, such a fluid like, thing. It's a it's a cut to spoil the commentary. <laughs> it's a cut, and the thing is, but it's a cut mixture of plane flying behind a mountain and then an, a dust explosion, and it's literally just a tiny cut. And you, if you don't, if you're not examining that closely, you just let it go by. Oh, the plane crashed in the mountain. No, you, and and then, you, and then when they when you're listening to coming, you're like, oh my gosh. Um, the speak, magic of movies. The magic friend. of movies. Well, and because also later in the commentary, Nichols keeps talking about the money they spent, the spectacle. Because one of the great things about Catch Twenty Two is all the money is on screen. It feels like one. It's one of those great movies where you see they spent a ton of money on it, and you feel it on screen. Um, Nichols. Uh, said they were just did this because they didn't know any better or he said he didn't know any better and i'm sure people tried to tell him that you could shoot this for a lower budget on a different thing and he was just like not having it because i don't trust any hollywood person that's going to make this look generic but he kept saying he didn't know any better 
Well, that, I don't do you want to hop back and forth because that ties into something he says in the Virginia Wolf commentary. Uh, where he they, doesn't know any better. Yeah, doesn't know any better. He goes. Remember, they go. They go shoot in the college campus, and he goes. He goes. I, he said that. I, I thought that was a little facetious, just because he he was saying that literally when you could see on screen. It was. I want to say it was the tree tree scene mm-hmm. between, uh, and you could see their breath, and they shot in the cold, and you could see the location in the background, and it wore. It's and especially to make a no, no. It, it's I, so I, much I'm glad. They, I mean, I'm glad they went ahead on went on location, but he said. He didn't know better because a, a typical director or you know a studio would have probably just said just just do this in LA, stay we'll, in LA and do this. We'll talk about this in a, a little more later. But another resource I, I kind of double checked on was the Sam, great Samuel Steen book, uh, "Cut to the, Cutting to the Chase," which is one of the best books on editing. And he talked in like one of the reasons. So, so they were three weeks over schedule, and they doubled the budget on Who Afraid, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, and the reason was was because. Burton and Taylor, they would, they would, oh, yeah. they would like, they would, they had a stipulation in their contract saying that they didn't have a film after six p.m. and they drink after lunch and then show up at five p.m. <laughs> and guests were coming and going all the time. But yeah. but they said that they couldn't. Yeah, we, we'll, we'll go to that in a second. But he, they couldn't fire them because uh, Nichols, even though he was very close to being fired, because then Burton and May would walk off the movie. Buck Henry told Soderbergh, which later told Nichols, that comedy shouldn't be backlit. And one of the things, and Nichols then seems to kind of agree because he talks about there's an inimical to comedy and feeling, but he thought it was a good trade just because it's a very distinctive thing. And then Soderbergh says it's one of the best photograph films he's ever seen. What do you think about, uh, well, and on that point, uh, uh, Watkin seems to be a proponent of light, not so much the camera. Remember that they said that. You, what do you? Th- what's your thoughts on that? That that's great if you like, when you if you don't have a big production that's holding up, so you can only shoot three times through three hours a day, and like if you have like a lot of people involved, that just it's massively expensive. But what does it matter? Who you? Know, I had a friend one time say like um, when or hundred you, you're making a, we were making a movie, and he said hundred years from now, do you think someone's going to look at this movie and say, oh, they came in under budget? <laughs> yeah, uh, Clint Eastwood's uh, mantra. Uh, but uh, you know, uh, no, his budget is to come under budget, and my friend's point was like it doesn't matter. No, no yeah, no, yeah, I mean, that's what I just you know, and that, and then of course, Nichols lived through that whole shift, and where all of a sudden we have box office results uh, recorded, uh, given to us on the weekend. We have uh, budgets uh, uh, displayed for us. I mean, I think about how Charlie Chaplin like would do. He would just shut down. He couldn't get any further, and he would just shut down for two or three days. And just think and, and work and then start back up again. I mean, I mean, movies can still do that. There's the there's the production of call, they call it European hours, where it, it depends on the size of your crew, and like how much money you're sp- paying to put get a location. And so if you've bought a town and you have the sixth largest air fleet force <laughs> in the world, it's expensive to shut down for a day or two. But I mean, like if the light shows it works. I, yeah. I mean, I, I, I at the end of the day, I still it's it's still a great movie to look at, and I didn't have to pay for it except right. for my DVD. Yeah, I wrote down in my notes too. Comedy shouldn't be back. But the other thing I wrote down, uh, sacrifice clarity for the style. Yeah, I, I wrote that down too. Uh, so we're you know, the way same wavelength here, and of course I love the sh- how he, got, he showed up Kubrick. Remember uh, that, what he said? I like, think you have problem on the uh, uh, narrative or the clarity of the narrative. Yeah, yeah. Well, his big thing was about um, what's Netley's horror. Is is the um, this, again spoiler, but um, 
uh, Yuserif gets stabbed at the beginning of the movie, and it's kind of more revealed at the ending who did it. And I remember my first viewing, I wasn't that unclear on it. I don't know why. You were not unclear? I wasn't. Oh, I, and, and when I watched it again, I was like, how did I realize that? I can't. I couldn't pinpoint it. But yeah, but Kubrick uh, had a, got an early screening and said that, uh, yeah, it's that's pretty pretty good film, but I, I think you're going to lose your audience. You might the audience might get lost a little bit, you know, on it. Well, the uh, other the other cool quote I got it's more from later in the commentary, but uh, uh, Nichols says movies don't like good taste. <laughs> He's because he talks about the austerity and the way they shot, and goes more towards the style over the clarity. Because I know one big uh, bugaboo you always had about Nichols is the clear divide that I think is after the fortune or mainly. Uh, Day of the Dolphin or After the Fortune, where in between that and his time away till he comes back on Silkwood, where it was the long takes, and uh, he, he and then when he comes back on Silkwood, he starts. Am I? No, no, I, I don't know if it's me. I, I thought you and I had, had this conversation. I, I don't know. No, I don't think we've had that. Uh, really well, you were, I thought you and I talked about him leaving for a bit, which well, we, which the the Harris book does. A yeah, little, we might have talked about detail. that, but I, I but we talked about how he discovered editing. Oh, editing. <laughs> But before but, that, he did these long yeah. takes, which, and there, I don't, it, it, which, I, is it Virginia Woolf commentary? Soderbergh flat, flat out asks him, is it a theatrical thing? Just because he's used, yeah. he's used to staging thing right. and not having to play with time. And Mike says no. Which surprised me because yeah. one of the things I found with the limited things I've shot, but more in the stuff I've edited, is that I needed just to play with time. I need time, like, I need to figure out stuff, uh, time for, to, to make performance work. And like staging on set really commits you, which is something he also talked about in the Who's Afraid of Virginia Wolf commentary, where they knew the text, they committed to the text, and they just had to commit to it after a certain point in their staging of it and the way they filmed it. Yep. Yeah. Um, the uh, he also did a quote in here: "Not my kind of movie." You're kidding. Yeah. I don't remember that part. He says, "Not my kind of movie." Uh, because, what, oh, what was because the it, because he, he talks about there's because there's no subtext in this movie. Yeah, it's all well, out there in front of you, and oh no, no, I do have that written down. Not got my community because he talks about the fact that uh, normally he's so obsessive with behavior, which is a big part. He loves Mark to, he loves to find a center, central metaphor and a theme, mm -hmm. and then just and then work on that, and then and then hide it. Well, he's also really interested in the interpersonal and what people don't say. Yeah. That was a big thing. Is that, to yeah, talk about. what is this like? And what's next? <laughs> right. I mean, the the great things about the Mark Harris book, if anyone's interested in reading it, that I thought was just anyone interested in directing in particular, is there are so many great directing actors' stories. One of my favorite techniques was to get into, he talked about in some plays, to get intimacy between his actors. He just had uh, the two leads or the two leads he needed to get intimacy between lie on a couch together and read lines. Yeah. Or on the line of the floor and, and do it. Yeah, 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 but they had to lie together. They had yeah. to lie very close to each other. Or uh, he's they they talk a lot about it. the big reason I wanted to do the commentaries as a reason to talk about the book is because they keep mentioning that he's so great at directing by telling stories. He'll tell a metaphor and or um, personal stories. Uh, yeah, you know, it doesn't have to do you know with the characters or the, or the story itself. Oh, uh, uh, one of, one of my favorite is that it's not in either these commentaries or but uh, Hank Azaria was having problems on the birdcage and he's supposed to get really hysterical 
and Nichols told this story about Judy Garland getting nervous before every performance, and Judy Garland had a helper that would get, try to get nervous with her, and then would try to like make it so that she, the helper would get more nervous, so Judy Garland became preoccupied with calming the helper down, and yeah. they did that before every show. Yeah, and then, and, and then and he said, hey, tell Azaria, you're that person. Yeah, it, it totally unlocked it, and then from there on, Azaria had it down pat. Uh, we should see, you know, I think in the book, and I, I don't know, I think he says in one of the commentaries maybe too, where he, you know, he just kind of accidentally f- found out, he, oh, this is what I do. This is what I do. This is, I'm a director. You know, it was almost, you know, everything that he had uh, led up the Elaine May, um, his, his, uh, his coupling with Elaine May, their improvisational thing they did on Broadway. And his, he took acting classes. Yeah, and, and, you know, and, the, and the, it's amazing. The compass, uh, uh, the Compass, later Second City Theater. That morphed into the Second City. You know, basically, uh, Nichols and May are kind of ground zero for, you know, Saturday Night Live, National Lampoon, Second City. All these mm-hmm. odd modern day comedy almost starts with them. Uh, well, I think and, in the Mark Harris book in particular, I was really surprised, but also it's so obvious Morn Michaels was a big oh yeah big uh, buddies. source yeah and he was also and Mike Nichols was the unofficial Godfather of the early days of Saturday Night Live and it makes sense Buck Henry how many episodes did he host in the first five years yeah yeah well all, a bunch of Mike's people Candace Bergman uh, Bergman, uh and and Buck and uh, there was a couple other ones that are uh, that were part of yeah his no group. His and then of course he ends up and I got I I, I ordered it because I don't think I've ever watched it and I ordered a, uh, it's a main on demand DVD but I ordered Gilda. Uh, into the the Gilda movie. We should, oh man, I wish we we talked a little bit about the Gilda movie on our um, the SNL episode we did about nothing lasts forever. Uh-huh. We briefly none of us seen, but we had this long debate about who what the first Lauren Michaels produced movie was. I want to real briefly go into just because I want to get it out of the way. There's a part of me that's. Um, I've been waiting for a good Mike Nichols book forever, and so this is reason, it. <laughs> oh, it is. But and and to be fair, uh, not, or life isn't everything. Still pretty solid too. But there's a part of me that got to the end of this, and realized I also want a great Elaine May book. Oh gosh, yeah, yeah. I really want. And Nichols May is a, like a, a been a fascination for me for a while. And w- one of the things I've read recently about them, which I reread going into this is on the blacklist in 2017 there was a script called when in doubt seduced by Allie hagan she's a she created an abc show called notorious but it's a a biopic about nichols may going from them meeting till about their breakup the nichols may breakup and as biopics go you, you know me i'm hard on them i hate the the rise and fall story i hate the made up shit typically it's a pretty solid script um one of the great quotes from there is Nichols' first instinct is cruelty, but he isn't a cruel person. Um, but w- w- there are also the script, um, I think in the in the Harris book, may, this might have been in Life Isn't Everything, they have some kind of gossipy, did they have sex when they first met, or did they were they ever a couple? The script m- makes it distinct. It, t- it says they did couple when they first came together, but then uh, May decided that they were too much of a, uh, soulmates in a way that they couldn't be a couple and that they had to be partner creative partners for the rest of their lives but um the harris book do you you're, you're nodding that you don't remember this in the harris book no 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 i'm, I'm no I'm, I'm i'm yes i'm, I'm not a yes okay okay because i like, agree with everything you're saying it was I like mean, they yeah. they oh yeah i mean and there, it, there was a thing where like uh, there was a description of which is also in the script of when he went back, when Nichols first went back to May's apartment, she made him hamburgers with cream cheese and ketchup on it. 
and maybe Nichols lived with them for four days. Like the only really fudging that I saw in the script was uh, it changes the timeline on Nichols' first marriage and the Pen- Pendarello sketch for Nichols' May. Yeah. Parandello, excuse me, Parandello. Um, the, the, she writes it later as a circuit act thing so it can make them like have a fight and like that was a much earlier sketch sketch of theirs but she she designs it dramatically to to like make a big end of second act argument yeah I mean, yeah the, there's a lot to be mined with uh the couple and elaine I, i'm i'm that's another i'm just all of a sudden become super super uh fascinating with elaine may uh and uh, you've watched the american masters lately because I thought, because I only seen. Yes, I did. I got, I, I got a copy. I saw it years ago, and Man I thought you were pushing copy. me to watch it, rewatch it. Uh, but uh, actually, I was, I was, my first viewing of it, I was a little disappointed. But the second viewing, I, I enjoyed it more. Okay. Uh, There's just, a lot I, of quotes in life. Life isn't everything from the American Masters. Because I'm putting a lot. I'm putting a lot. I'm, a lot I have a you know expectations of what laid me. I'm, I'm I'm on the campus saying she's great. Uh, oh yeah. And I'm a child of the '60s, so I grew up. I. They would show up on you know a tonight a late show or Ed Sullivan or something you know variety show. So I, I sort of knew them in my you know just along with everybody else Dean Martin and uh, uh, you know all the different actors Ed Sullivan would have on and everything. I kind of grew you know and George but Carlin. They, they broke up like I know, uh, but they, they you would, but you remember because 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 they they talk about it was they, like sixty five they went to Selma or yeah 60, right yeah, yeah. I, I and I that was a reunion. Uh, maybe from my I don't know I I just I I. They were not a stranger to me in a way, but I, I don't know. Several years ago, I walked into Coconuts, a, a, a record store, and somebody had dumped three of their CDs, mm-hmm. and and they were really cheap. And I just I snatched them, raced home, and I and I played them, and I'm like, oh my gosh, it was just it was just so wonderful. And they still hold up. Uh, I mean, they are they are over their time, but yet they're still. Cr- wonderful to right. uh, really get into i think over, you're we're standing next to my cd collection i think one of the very first things i ever bought off amazon was a nichols may cd yeah uh, and yeah there and uh and of course you, and then you start when you start uh discovering all this so i guess in the graduate out commentary uh we jump over to that is this, uh, they talk about how the, the great cigarette scene is yeah it's taken from the, te- the teenager sketch yeah i last three few things i want to i want to finish up the catch 22 uh the fellini sequence that called it because they go, they shoot so much in italy uh yeah it's almost sort of drag a little bit there oh it, it drags yeah, yeah no no like, i'm glad you pointed it that out it was a little stagey too it just like it doesn't yeah, seem to any more, as a grant organic as i would what would I think that's where they got tied into the book, although well, I haven't read the book, so I can't say. Um, this also follows a thing of like Alex North scores, who's afraid of Virginia Woolf, but it seemed like like Osteen said that Nichols was afraid of score, <laughs> which was why they ended up with Simon Garfunkel so much in The Graduate. But Nichols also talked about his options at what he would have done differently right now to get rid of that austerity or... And he said scoring would have been one of the things he might have done now. Oh, and then of course, but there is that one piece of music, and everybody said, "Take it out, take it out." Oh and my! And I mean, it's it's a it's a gag, it's a funny gag, and Nichols even says maybe we should have gotten rid of it. But it's uh, it's two thousand one. The Sphinx Arthurstra. Yeah, where this is uh, a, a very voluptuous Italian woman is walking toward the camera, and it's and it's like. Sh- what three years after two years after 2001's release it's yeah. just, it, it reminded me of in 1941 the opening of 1941 that opens with the jaws parody yeah. it's like you're too close <laughs> it's too close you can't parody it yet I, I, and I, it, it, it really dates it and it also makes your this movie's better than that come on I'll, i wrote this down and i, I now i can frankly the context but he uh he, he i think i got it in quotes von stroheim folly 
He says this is a von Stroheim folly. I, I, oh, I think I, it's. I think I remember that part. And I think that probably is referencing just the size, know, the attention to the minutia and the detail that you know von Stroheim would just go and just and it would and that would drag out. Of course, you know he's he makes it out in our film. <laughs> he so I mean the others are the big sequence at the end where they blow up all the sets you've seen this entire time. Oh my gosh! And and Watkins I think has this like uh, he like winks at him and he's like I'm going and like he's like I'm only going to light this with the explosions and they have a <laughs> line one line that they had to get and he the line is screwed up so they had to loop it anyway. <laughs> And then there's also the uh, the Truffaut uh, theory about circles and cor- uh, corners. Oh, did you, did you write that down? I didn't write that down, yeah. but I thought that was an interesting yeah, point. Really do you cool. want to say? No, do you want to say what that? Well, I think it's like, what was it? It's. Uh... It, it was the scene with um, um, Charles oh. Grodin oh, after. It is, it is eerie looking too. It's, it's like uh, circles are intimate and corners are intimidating. It, it, those aren't those aren't the words, but it's something, something like something there. But corners uh, are harsh. Yeah. Well, yeah. Car- Charles Grodin's backing into a corner, and in that as he's giving one of the most psychotic. Charles Grodin does not. Ha- is, I have never seen a uh, performance of him being this psychotic. It's it's great. And and and, and it's funny when uh, I think Soderbergh mentions the Truffaut theory, and and Nichols goes, "Yeah, I wish I had known that when I was doing it." Yeah. It was it was a theory that he didn't know. Uh, so look that up. I have, I'll have to look that up. One of the last shows. observations I had, Nichols points out that they didn't have a lot of over-the-shoulder shots, which is a very typical thing. And he thought, um, in a very Nichols way, it's common. People do that a lot. But Nichols thought that was what was a coldness. But then he started comparing it to 18th century painting. And I was like, there's the erudite New Yorker talking about why a, a very common cinematic technique thing didn't work or made the movie cold. But I, like I said, the, uh, folks, I, I can't really recommend how that's just the one of the most... Sublime commentaries that saw him and Nichols on the, the Catch Twenty Two. The movie yeah, and yeah. it too. I yeah. mean, like, yeah, the drag part at the end too. But I mean, like, the, and the reveal of the fever pitch of the dream is it's a it's a amazing reveal. I mean, I think when I first saw it recently, I don't want to spoil that one. Yeah, yeah no, right. but I, I I I was just like ah. You know, uh, it was pretty amazing. Yeah, uh, pretty good. I mean, I, I think it's, we're t- we're two people who haven't read the book talking to probably a bunch of people that have read yeah. the book. So. Now we're moving on to the big iconic one, uh, The Graduate. Yeah, which was supposed to be his first film. Yeah. I wrote that down. Uh, drowning, in quotes. Drowning. Yeah, that, uh, yeah, I guess there's always this that Dustin Hoffman character is in the sense of the drowning. Wa- sense of waters or yeah, around water's him, the, big, water, the big yeah. uh, scuba diving sequence. Uh, I, I wrote down uh, uh, the uh, place in the sun informs this film somewhat. Yeah, the uh, long takes. I uh, a place in the sun is right now on Amazon Prime, and I'm really wanting to rewatch that again. Yeah, it's a really yeah. There's, it's, I remember when I finally got around to that as an adult. I don't think I saw it as a kid. He also mentions or Soderbergh specifically mentions Persona, and uh, then Nichols talks about Place in the Sun, but also mentions Preston Sturges, and this is all to talk about the long takes. And he says Preston Sturges and talks about the scene in Lady Eve where Barbara Stanwyck seduces Henry Fonda all in one shot with no take yeah. or no cut, no cut. Um, well, there's so much to talk about. We can talk about this forever, but uh, I like the I, my one of the funniest thing is the Robert Redford story where they're when he tell he's told that the the book really does get and and both books get this across the uh, print the legend thing of stories of like he's told these stories so many times like when he Mike Nichols came over on a boat with a, a no parental supervision from he was born 
in uh, Berlin and he escaped Nazi Germany. His uh, mother lagged behind, but his dad went over first. So him and his brother, his brother's a bigger source in Life Isn't Everything, too. I don't remember his brother being such a big part of the Mark Harris book. He had these signs on him, supposedly, this story Nichols told till the day he died that he said, please do not, what was it? Please do not kiss me? Yeah, do, yeah. Do not kiss it was like me two or touch signs. me. I think or something, yeah. 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 Uh, he, he tells those stories a lot. Well, do you want to tell the Redford story? The, no, sorry, sorry. Yeah, tell the Redford story. I cut, I cut off your Redford story. I'm sorry. Well, no, it's just that I think it's funny because uh, he'd worked with Barefoot in the Park with Redford. Redford was his guy. He wanted Redford in Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, too. And the book is a waspish character. Right. And that, I guess that's the brilliance of Buck and Mike and everything that to take that and go in a different direction with it. Uh, and so Redford wanted the part. He was, and they were playing pool apparently at one point, and, and they were talking about the part. And, and uh, he got, uh, he's I, saying, "You need to be. Uh, I need you to play a loser." And Redford's like, "I can play a loser." Yeah, and Mike, and he, he goes, "Well, when's ever a girl? Has a girl ever turned you down?" He, and then Redford goes, "No, no." He, he goes, "What do you What do you do if you struck out with a girl?" And and that Redford says, "What do you mean?" Yeah, what do you mean? It's just it's just like, uh, uh, but it's interesting too, though, because that's kind of it's that's. It, not fair for Redford in a way, because if you look at Redford's career, he he takes that care he he plays his he plays off his uh, good looks and makes and dis- deconstructs it sure. a lot of times in his films, right. the ones that he had more control over. Soderbergh calls this one of he's saying I'm not wanting to be hyperbolic, but one of the biggest cast decisions in American cinema history, and kind of right. I I want to say I even got a bolder statement. Uh, that Go I want to throw out, and I threw it out to a, another film fanatic yesterday, and he goes, "Well, that's a little bit, <laughs> little hyperbolic. It's a little bit too big." And I go, "Well, yeah, I want to say, <laughs> and I'm, I'm going, I'm, you know, I'm really going off on a limb on this. Build up, but the uh, the graduate to almost. I was thinking about this when I watched it this week with the commentary that it is the sort of the Citizen Kane of the new Hollywood. Uh, film of uh, the new Hollywood wave that happened. Yeah, uh, I, I don't, I don't disagree with that. I mean, Bonnie and Clyde is a contemporary of it, you know. And of course, everybody, it's Easy Rider is the flashpoint. Everybody, everybody, you know, zones. Isn't in a, this what Pictures of the Revolution is about? Well, yeah, but, well, because sixty-seven is one, this charter year. Bonnie and Clyde and the and and graduate of the two, of two of the five. Mm-hmm. And the other ones are studio stuff. Uh, Doctor Doolittle, um, in the heat of the night, night and, and I guess who's coming to dinner? Oh, right. So, uh, but no, there are, there are lead-ups prior to Easy Rider, but everybody, you know, most books and, and, and essays and commentaries and blah, 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 you know, Easy Rider is the, is the turning point, you know, where everybody went crazy and let everybody through the gate and, and anybody that had a script, they, your pizza delivery boy had a script, they give you, a, they, they let you direct it, mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. But there was like lead-ups, you know, Mickey One, go back to Arthur mm-hmm. Penn with Mickey right. One, you know, and stuff like this. But I watched, and here's the thing, one reason I think I thought of this is because uh, I'm watching the graduate, the commentary, and I actually st- I had to I got distracted from the commentary to watch the movie because I, I I got caught up in the film. Every time I watched the graduate, I get I got caught up, and it's and there's so many things that Nichols and Buck and 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 whoever else worked on it uh, contributed to it. That, that's I mean, and I'm not saying it's nothing super new, but it it, it kind of rejuvenated. You know, and 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 it plus it influenced faster than Citizen Kane did. If you think about Citizen Kane, it you know all these innovations that were put together in one film, but it took the, for, the music in particular, right? But but nothing really 
uh, quickly happened after Citizen Kane film because the studios were still in power. With The Graduate, uh, everybody, it's like, uh, it's, you know, the the use of music, the use of editing. And, and a key element was Greg Tolan goes like, wants to go to work with Orson because he goes that he'll have fun and do things that he, you know, that are innovative and different. Mm -hmm. Robert Surtees, same thing with uh, Mike. He comes to him and says, oh, yeah, he wanted to work with him. And Robert, this well, guy. It, well, it was that and also like he was, every crazy idea Nichols had, he's like really excited about. Yeah, it. right. Like, and, the, like the, the close-ups when they're in the apartment or, or Elaine's apartment, they're like, take out the walls, shoot them long lens 30 feet back. Whereas in Virginia Woolf, remember that one guy he fired? He goes, Because he, he wanted to shoot on film and print in black and white. Well, and, the one guy goes, well, we, it's, it's just another film. Well, no, no, that is the AD yeah. that Nichols fired on the first right. day. Right, but, I mean, the, the but the guy, you know, the fact that he goes, he doesn't realize what he's working and doing. Because I said, oh, it's just another film. I, right Where Surtees is like, let's go, let's do this. Right you know? before you, when I was reading the Osteen book, um, the the cameraman that was fired before and before Haskell Wexler eventually shot Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf told Osteen later, I was wrong. <laughs> yeah, and then you know, I you're gonna you're gonna kill me on this, but. Uh, uh, and but Soderbergh does mention it, but Hard Day's Night is mentioned, you know. Uh, yeah, no, and I, and that's yeah. another that's that, but that's to me Hard Day's Night is super cool and fun to watch. But it, it, Lester's taking he's taking stuff from commercials and French New Wave, and and it's over in England and didn't really it didn't really you know kickstart our our wave. But The Graduate, I just it's just I think it's it's in some ways I think it's, it could be Ground Zero more so than Easy Rider is, you know. I don't, I'll give you that. I mean, I think on a, I think, I think you're onto something because my brain's going to 2001, and I think you're more accurate than I am on this. Yeah. Um. um so, but I, one thing I did want to mention the fact that irony of Soderbergh doing this commentary because Soderbergh was an executive producer on this movie called uh, Rumor Has It that was uh, written and was supposed to be directed by Ted Griffith, and he had to fire him on the first week, and eventually Rob Reiner directed it. But it stars Kevin Costner, Shirley MacLaine, and Jennifer Aniston, and it's about a daughter finding out that her parents might have been the basis of The Graduate, that their parents had, uh, the uh, was it Charles Webb is the author of the book of The Graduate? Yes. Might have been 21 or 22 at their wedding. Yeah, Charles Webb is the writer. You're right. You're well, the, the other, it's funny just because, like, gra The Graduate's actually had this weird life as a potential sequel forever, because, like, Buck, Buck Henry talks about it on the DVD EPK, and he's, he's pitching a Graduate sequel in Altman's The Player. Yeah. It's it is it, like I said it, it it's so and it what it's amazing it's still so alive, it it uh, uh, it still just uh, really uh, vibrates and I and I and I like I said I'm watching I'm I'm gonna dedicate watching and listen to the commentary and then I'm I'm getting distracted I had to you know rewind it to see what they said because I'm watching the sequ you know the the actual film more so, so you're gonna kill me but um, when I watched The Graduate. Uh, for the first time before the commentary, I had a take on the movie. I, I think I feel like there was parts of it I paid attention to more than I've ever paid attention. I had a problem with the ending, the very last shot. You know the icon. Ooh, wow! The, the, that's, yeah, that's the that's the break or make it of for, yeah. for people. Yeah, you know. So what it was was that you if you really fall uh, Mrs. Robinson's real problem with Benjamin as being with Elaine, it's that her marriage is unhappy because she got pregnant in the car. And Benjamin, he's making the jokes about Elaine started in a car, you know. So when she comes, they make a big deal about not wanting Elaine to see Benjamin. Like, 
Mrs. Robinson or Nichols on the commentary talks about Benjamin being just her shame, which sure, I guess that makes sense. There's also no real reason why, especially because Mr. Robinson really wants Ben, ben to hook up with Elaine. And then at the end, when they hook up with each other, Nichols talks about well, a big part of the movie is just not wanting to be like your parents, right? But so much of the second half of The Graduate is about trying to make Elaine and Ben's love story be like, the whole movie is about Ben being inactive and not wanting anything and not doing anything. And then when he realizes he wants Elaine, then he goes to Berkeley and starts chasing after her. And like, just he's very active for the second half of the movie until he gets on the bus. It's not like he got her pregnant. He just wanted, like, he was passionate for a while, and and he's got a beautiful girl that he seemed to be in love with. Like, it's not like they're destined to have a loveless marriage after that. Uh, so why did that not work for you? Did that... the, the empty feeling, the sound of silence playing over it makes it seem like she's going to repeat those mistakes of the parents. But, well, most likely, yeah, they will. So, I mean, uh, but they didn't get pregnant. They didn't get forced into a marriage. Yeah. They, they wanted to. They wanted to get with each other. No, I, I don't. Uh, that's a dream. Now, but you said you something. You changed your mind watching it again. You, you that you, was you, th- this time. I that, for the first time because I guess I've never really understood that Benjamin really wanted was really going after Lane, and I was really taken by the whole movie is about him not wanting anything after after school. And then with Elaine, he does want something. Uh, I, I thought it was daring too that they and they they talk, discussed it whether they they would finish the vows or not. So the, right, the, the vows right, are right. That's, that's part of the, the book. And that's, that's not typical Hollywood. Uh, yeah. And, well, in the rate, of course, it was starting to break the code down. Oh, I wrote. I circle. This is some just another my personal take. Another, the characters and the story is so strong. You forget how stylish it is. You almost you can watch it several ways and then. And there's all there. Then the, you, you, uh, uh, there's a lot of cool things happening style-wise that doesn't really uh, the, the story and the characters are so strong. I didn't really need it, but it's the combination of everything is just wonderful. Uh, again, again, it goes back down to the. Yeah, I think that uh, part of the reason I've never paid attention to the content as much is yeah. it's such a stylish, really well-shot movie, yeah, the montage, it, and and Hoffman's performance is. <laughs> I, I get it. It's it's. Uh. Um, <laughs> the whimper, which he said he got because someone said that when he was dealing with Jack Warner, that was the sound Mike Nichols made. Oh, going back, I wrote this down too. It is I mean, I, I can't emphasize enough. It opened an avenue to a new type of leading man. Yeah, uh, just because totally. uh, you know the De Niro's, the Pacino's, this uh, all that you know uh, ushered in a whole line that I grew up on. That was my era of of coming into my uh, uh, as I became a film fanatic. Uh, how that was such a big deal, uh, as opposed to the, the Gary Coopers and the John Waynes and mm-hmm. the, you know, that kind of characters. Yeah, I tell, yeah, you see it. I've I've always felt that way with Dust Hoffman. Oh, did you notice there's a, there's, a, there's a little cute little thing I just noticed too. There's a, there's a there's a, a litany of uh, loud screams in this movie. <laughs> you mean for starting well, with Elaine's apartment uh, scream? Uh, uh, that one's always which strange. one? Yeah, Elaine screams, scream. but there's so many screams. Uh, Elaine screams. Uh, there's two more screams. There's like uh, three big screams, and uh, and it's hilarious. I mean, I just it's no big deal. It doesn't really. I mean, there's no. Same. I can't But it's almost like you know, just comedy uh, routines that it, check, check it out when you watch it. Pay attention. There's like th- three big screams that are over, almost over the top. Almost kind of. So um, I got a Nichols lamented. He was angry at himself for not casting Anne Bancroft in ten more movies. Um, 
he talked about uh, watching this again. He felt like a lunatic just because he remembers what it's like being a director where you become someone who just can't be pleased. Um, he admits the thing you mentioned earlier about the teenagers, the Mickelsnay thing. He, he admits, admits that on here. Uh, Soderbergh points out that the age difference between uh, Anne Bakeroff and Dustin Hoffman is smaller than Angela Lansbury and Lawrence Harvey in The Manchurian Candidate. Yeah, because oh. they're close in age together. Yeah, yeah. And well, that's like that's that. Uh, go back. Ta- Nichols talks a lot about uh, Richard Silbert's decision to uh, put tan lines on Mrs. Robinson, which totally, totally works. Yeah, uh, the uh, interesting because he's always playing with. I mean, you go to Virginia Woolf and you go to this. He's he's got actresses playing much older versions of themselves. Uh, but uh, you know, and of course, you know, Dustin was supposed to uh, Mel Mel Brooks and Bancroft's husband wanted him to be in the producers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, I've heard that. And they, uh, but the Nichols was able to snag him sooner. Yeah. Um, Fleeing was a bigger influence on Catch-22, but it feels like Eight and a Half was Nichols' favorite movie at this time. I don't know, like, it feels like an influence on that. Yeah, well, did they talk about that in one of the commentaries? They, they've talked one? about it on, on multiple talks. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Jerry Lewis was shooting in the same studio <laughs> over from them, and it was one of the first uses of the uh, v- video monitor on set. Yeah, the... Uh, in fact, uh, one over and over and over, you hear again how Mike would love to laugh, and and they it, it got to a point in one of the films they had to get to move they had to move him out of the room and put him a, a blanket over him because he would start yeah laughing. they had and to get Mike, him far away from Mike him. would pick up the set and and no you know it's like you know it's nothing like you knew you were on the right track if you had Mike uh, ch- uh, chortling or laughing or uh, on it um, after Elaine's scream whenever everyone thinks that he's raped a very famous actor ends up getting a line in there. And Nichols fortuitously says he just picked a random guy, but Richard Dreyfus asks if the uh, uh, if Elaine's okay. And here's where the commentary comes in with you got Soderbergh as a, a top f- flight filmmaker talking with another top filmmaker, and uh, and why he makes it so a uh, vibrant commentary. Uh, you get insights of how films are constructed, or how the, how directors work, or how other observations reactions are. Soderbergh, when he mentions the Richard Dreyfus uh, appearance. He says something about you know I there's people that I've auditioned I, 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 over the years all these different and you go you didn't hire them for the part but you knew they were gonna make yeah. it you just see it you go this and sure enough they do you know um, so yeah. it's always that's always uh, Norman Fell uh, the landlord who shows he's in Catch Twenty Two he's, he's in Catch Twenty Two yeah and he's a uh, yeah Nichols's uh, 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 cat, uh, stock company is interesting as he accumulates over the years. Uh, behind the camera, but in front of the camera is really interesting. And, they, and Nichols goes in about that. I don't know if it's in the book or in the commentaries where he says, uh, you know, it takes a while before you you get your crew, and then you you know you you really feel solid because you've accumulated. You I know. don't I don't remember that part, but that always seems to be a recurring theme. You've always been interested in. Yeah, um, that with, you, with you other get, filmmakers. And of course, you know, and and it's it's stronger with other directors more so. I mean, gosh, you look at if you you look at Clint Eastwood's. Uh, Cast and crew, you know, it's we really, always look at Clint Eastwood. Well, I mean, you know, and Lester, you know, oh, everybody. I mean, we he always look at Lester. Could, uh, yeah, so. I love com- uh, Soderbergh's comment on something that has always been very, I mean, it, all the books talk about Catherine Ross. Everyone fell in love with her. Mm, yeah. But Soderbergh points out finally something. I'm glad someone said it. What about those lashes? Oh, the lashes, yeah. They're the most distinct part visually of her. 
And again, here, okay, again, here's another little things you get from the commentary that, you know, we're, we're talking about the commentaries and why you should listen to them. Uh, at one point, Nicholas says, yeah, she should start using her own clothes. Yeah. I mean, we couldn't, we couldn't, uh, and that's a little. Because he was saying that she, what she wore in the auditions and that's what everyone fell in love with. Yeah. And then they, and they, uh, and then he, and they kept going, she's not, this is not working. This is, this is not right. And they finally, it turned out she needed to wear her own clothes. And it was, and so that's a little tidbits that you get, uh, that, that really, uh, are fascinating. And, and, and you really glean from, uh, these commentaries that he does with Soderbergh. He talks about this more in the Who's Afraid of Virginia Wolf thing. But one of the things he talks about with rehearsal is that, you know, he asked for a lot of times and people would give it to him because he came from the theater, which is not common in film. But part of his advice for it was don't perfect, which, I mean, seems obvious. Don't perfect or do it rehearse. But to rehearse intensively way far out from the film. So you don't film, you don't rehearse, because Lumet, I think, would, like, rehearse, Sidney Lumet would rehearse, like, right up up to the film. He said rehearse way early, take some time off, and then come back and film. Hey, I just, this, is, this is what struck me was we're talking about The Graduate, <laughs> and we referenced and talked a little bit about Day of the Dolphin. You gotta kind of get the same ending in both films. I don't, you know, you mentioned Day of the Dolphin's weird ending, but yeah. I don't remember the day the of the ending. The ending is just Jorcey Scott and Trance Vanderveer sitting, they, they, they walk off, uh, the, the, the dolphins have taken off, and the, uh, there are members of their crew have run off into the, the jungle or whatever, the be, uh, the island, and Jorcey Scott and Trance Vanderveer just kind of sit down, just sit down and just sit. Huh. And well, then and that movie ends. I know. And, and it's like, there's no, like, well, are they just sitting there? You know, it's almost like Benjamin and, and Elaine I, sitting there. <laughs> I don't remember I, if the Harris, did you read the graduate pe- chapter in the, in the Harris book? Oh, yeah. yeah. I, I can't remember if it's in that book or if it's in Life Isn't Everything, but a, a very strong point someone says, you know, Mike Nichols is making a movie where a protagonist builds up and just screams when someone else gets married, Elaine. Was there someone else named Elaine that was big in his life? <laughs> uh, this is, there's, a, there's one that screams at the end. Oh, Elaine. But uh, uh, either the, one of the parents because scream. Oh, the other scream. I'm sorry. I'm glad I remember this because I, I, I brought this up and then you're looking at me like, what's he going? Um, uh, the mother, when she goes, I, I'm going to marry Elaine. And uh, uh, Ruth Wilson just, ah! Oh, right, it's, a, it's right, almost like it almost right. like it almost takes okay. you out of the movie. Okay. But yeah, but so there's like I thought that, that's kind of why do you think what was the prize of stream? Is it is it like the to bring it back to Citizen Kane, the bird <laughs> in Citizen Kane? Well, yeah, oh the bird, yeah, the cockatoo. But yeah, it's just it's just funny how these you know just little things I picked up you know as you watch them over and over again. I was like, oh, there's three giant screams in this film, you know. Now I can't cut that out. Uh, <laughs> do we? Wanna, yeah, yeah, I knew you were going to cut that out. You actually. knew. Uh, are we moving on to Who's Afraid of Virginia? Wolf? Sure. I mean, we. I mean, we. You know, we should have devoted a whole thing to the graduate. I mean, we could put probably. They're popular movies. We, yeah, we yeah. Just, we don't. We, we're yeah. talking about. We're the, talking the, about audit commentaries. Commentaries. You, folks, you nailed one of the. Yeah. No, you nailed it. There's a fast. There's a, Soderbergh's commentaries are he he. It's this mixture. of He's still a curious film fan. He's still a technician who wants to know in detail this stuff. But he's also an established filmmaker who, when he does these these commentaries with people, he gets their their respect. And so, it's just a unique blend. And he's just got such interesting insight into these movies, and he's and he's inquisitive enough and direct enough to ask these filmmakers about them too. Yeah. So I mean, well, you know, you know me. Any any, any director that would have, has to devote half a book to Richard Lester is great in my mind. <laughs> I, I'm bugging him with the Lester here. Cutting stuff. you off. It's, it, this is like 2 a.m. and I'm turning off the lights of the bar. You don't, yeah. I'm cutting you off. Um, 
this commentary on Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, weirdly, it was it, if I hadn't read the books, would have been fascinating. But I found it like so many quotes from the uh, chapter in the Harris book, and in I think Life Is and Everything are taken from this commentary. Well, yeah, I mean, how can you avoid that? Because there's so much. I don't know if it's him repeat Nichols repeating the same story. It didn't feel like it because no. they were direct quotes. Yeah. Know? But yeah, it's it's an amazing. I mean, there again, there's just all, and the fact that you know how old was he was in his late twenties. No, no, he was he was mid twenties. No, he's thirty. He's oh yeah, 30, he already hit thirty. I think he did thirty. Uh, but you know, and of course, uh, how does he get to snag a film with Elizabeth Taylor, and Richard Burton? Of course, and, and you find that in the book or in the commentary where, uh, as Elaine and him were doing their. Uh, to the Nichols and May on Broadway. Right. Next door was Camelot with Richard Burton. So they would go over and... and he became friends with Richard, Richard Burton. Richard Burton. And then he ends up, <laughs> lack of a better word, uh, escorting or babysitting Elizabeth Taylor. Uh, over, not during, escort. Not that... Or, I, that that word has a different connotations. Well, no, me, I mean, I, yeah, I'm, I'm using escort in a very not in that way. Or yeah, uh, chaperone. Chaperone. Uh, over when she was doing Cleopatra, and she had and she'd have all this downtime, and and Burton wasn't there, and so Richard called him up, said, "Hey, can you go over and spend some time with Elizabeth?" And so they got close that way. They mentioned the commentary. It's in the Osteen book. I first heard about this in the Osteen book, but they hired Osteen was supposed to be doing. Osteen was hired to be the film, basically kind of an assistant editor. He got his promotion from, after you have the seven years you're supposed to be an assistant editor, it was just his first feature film. But they hired a man named Donnie Harrison, who uh, Billy Wilder had recommended. And he was a man that Billy Wilder worked with who would then figure out how to shoot shots that would cut together on set. Basically, an on-set editor, which... But then Nichols and him didn't get along, and he got fired. But I found it fascinating that like Wilder had someone basically composing sh- kind not. I always took it as composing shots, but I guess not. That's a little elaborate. And Wilder concentrated on directors, but Osteen and him seemed to get along. But then Nichols got tired of using him. Hey, I mean, he quit after a week. And did uh... and 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 Osteen got hired also just because he was the first editor who said he could do overlaps, which. Sure, it's, it must be hard technically, but because in the, the book of the one of the commentaries where Nichols says it also, it's always a good thing to uh, fire somebody uh, right off the bat. Both, so. but that was the one where he talked about the uh, AD who I thought it was on here. The AD who said, "Oh, it's just another movie." Yeah, it is on that one. Yeah, it's in both, but like yeah. he tells in detail the story on the commentary because yeah. he sounds very justified. Because yeah. <laughs> there's also that scene later where uh, Elizabeth Taylor was afraid of crying, and Nichols kept assuring her, "You'll be fine." And when she finally did the scene and cried, some stagehand fell asleep and was snoring loudly. And Nichols says to show how great Elizabeth Taylor was as a person, the minute he said cut, she jumped to him and said, don't fire him. Yeah. Oh, and of course, I think my favorite thing they said about Elizabeth is the goes, you shoot the scene and it didn't really seem to play that well and you see her in, in live as you're shooting it. It's like it's not it's not coming up, and then they would watch the dailies, and it's like, oh my gosh, it's there. And he also talked about uh, how every other actor on set was really uh, f- uh, just completely amazed at how well she knew filmic acting and, yeah. and, and to teach and, and just little things she would do, and they all wanted to learn from her. And that helps me as a film fan over the years, and at, at, my, at my age, you know, I can't just like, yeah, Elizabeth Taylor, she's, you know, because of the Richard, all the, the, I grew, you know, I grew up with the tabloids about her, 
and and she'd been around and Lassie and you know all these films and I was like yeah 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 and then to hear that and then to see that it's like oh okay no the, I need to rethink all this I need to you know uh, she was an actor's actors yeah you know, just I love how you know something about the you know bathing in Technicolor and the, ba- the bath yeah the bath the Technicolor <laughs> got got her, her most just, of her performance just, she just come out but you know it, it, they stars get such a bad rap in the terms of acting and then you 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 need to really stop and think rethink that not to jump back to the catch 22 uh commentary but there's a scene in catch 22 where he uh usarian comes in the and finds his uh, uh officer on a toilet and on that commentary he says nichols got that story from elizabeth taylor who came in when she was a teenager to louis b mayor <laughs> on a toilet giving him a meeting and she said she hated him for oh, it oh yeah Oh, and we know we know we did. We we kind of totally forgot. To, we didn't talk about anything about Orson being on the set Catch Twenty Two. Oh my God! It's uh, a whole, well, I, we, we'll save that for an Orson Welles uh, podcast. No, uh, let's do it now. Let's but, do it now. Orson Welles. What? Like? No, you're right. It was he. Well, I, I love the fact that you know he comes on the set and a couple of things. He had Peter Badonovich is there attached to him with a microphone, and he's this is when Peter's doing all these interviews with it. It ended up being a, a big book. And this, a, it's kind of the stuff that's parodied in yeah. the beginning of Other Side of the Wind. <laughs> yeah, and then uh, and then a point uh, he gets his uniform on, and then Norris never takes the uniform off. <laughs> he wears it the rest of the days he's there on and off the set in yeah. his, his general uniform. And, the, and I mean. Um... Uh, was it? What's the guy's name? Austin. What's the actor? Austin Pendleton. Austin Pendleton wrote a play about his time with Orson Welles on the set, just because they thought Orson Welles was a bully, and he, they, the, the as much time as they spent six months shooting Catch Twenty Two, they block shot out Orson Welles, and apparently he made everyone miserable. And and Nichols says later that it was only years later that he found out that Welles had tried to get the rights to Catch Twenty Two and didn't. And Nichols was glad that he never knew that when they were shooting. Yeah, and he, and of course you know they all you know being film people they were all like deferring to him. But then they found out you know he, Orson was doing you know Orson would interrupt shots with like you know line and you know and all this stuff. No, the the craziest was like uh, uh he he would ask for line readings on other people's shots. When he was shooting a reverse shot, and he was, well, to be fair, or someone else is there shooting with someone else for someone else's shot, but he would ask for a line <laughs> read. But then also he would, he'd ask Nichols for line readings. And the, Nichols' details on the commentary, the specific one where Usarian gets his medal naked, yeah. that Nichols is just, I just need to do this how Buck Henry does this. And it's in the film. That's yeah. the way it is. You're you're a weird. Was it you're a weird guy? You're a very weird man. Uh, yeah, yeah. The uh, then uh, Austin Piddleton. Remember he looks at Austin. He goes, "Are you? Is that how you're going to do it?" And Austin <laughs> goes, "Yes." <laughs> and you know, but even you know, funny thing is, they still you know they still adored and loved the guy. But then John Wayne came down for a visit. And that, that that's detailed in the in the Harris book too. Speaking of stars, you know, uh, you know John John Wayne, you know, on the commentary, Nichols feels so guilty about yeah, this. But yeah. he came down. It was he was just there to buy some land. Uh, to, I think purchase some land. I think it was that. Uh, See, I thought there was some like weird hubris of like a star comes down and's like, you should come meet me at the airport. <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, well, I just as a cur- common courtesy, it's probably old school L.A. Hollywood thinking, you know that. Hey, you know it's, it's John Wayne. Oh, they might come. I mean, that's. I mean, that's probably I, just. Uh, in, but nobody came to see I John. I guess Nichols. Nichols seems to regret it, and he seems to regret it just because they were mad at what they considered was John Wayne's regressive politics at the time. Yeah. But, oh yeah. But it whatever. <laughs> um, but Orson, yeah, you know, again, Orson's everywhere, and when you when you're a film fan, it's just it's 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 always amazing to see him to but, come in and go out of this. But thing. one place Orson 
is not, unless you count some some occasional deep focus shots, is in Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, which is my transition back into the commentary <laughs> okay. of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. Um, there was some, back to the, the book being a repository of great directing advice, uh, this also, there's, there's a few questions Nichols had that I thought was amazing. Whenever you're going to scene, basic questions he always goes to is, to whom is this happening? Um, one thing that appears in the book a lot is, what is this really like? And another one, he especially would ask of George, whose moment is this? And it seems like when you when you have a scene, especially when you, you're committed to the material, like those are hard things to figure out sometimes. Yeah, I mean, and and he does like, and what's next, and where is it going? You know, he, he would he would after he goes, what is this scene about, and then where does it go? Mm, where does it go? Where does it go? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And he, uh, and that's I think that that's what makes him a very interesting director. I, I love the fact that, and then he would do the the thing. I've heard this before too, but uh, especially uh, I guess maybe I don't know who you know started that, but maybe he would have he would actually have wait stop everybody. Okay, everybody read opposite roles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That yeah. that was in the book a lot. And yeah. I think that's, they, that's a great, great. Can you imagine? Yeah, doing that in rehearsals and how that would inform your performance. Puts you in the other character's shoes, frees you up. Yeah, get makes you empathize with someone who you may be developing too much of an antagonistic line readings with. We didn't mention uh, uh, being people getting fired. Uh, he fired Gene Hackman. On the graduate. graduate. Yeah, yeah. and uh, during rehearsals. During rehearsals, and but the funny thing is, he uh, he he got around to giving Gene some great roles later. Yeah, uh, and so yeah, like, well, just, one of the great work. American actors, great yeah. American film actors. In fact, I think I just read the part in the book where he goes, uh, Mike would actually rattle off all the great actors he fired <laughs> over the years, and and almost reveled in it. Well, you, you met, with Day of the Dolphin, what's fascinating was he, in the, oh. did you get to the part of the book where they were directing um, uh, George C. Scott? I forget which oh, play yeah. it was. Oh, the play, Von, El Cavanya. Was it El Cavanya? Is it? Okay. I thought it was a George, Neil Simon or something. What a handful. What cause, a, cause, he, cause Neil Simon, or cause I thought it was a Neil Simon one because George C. Scott was really happy about finally having a hit. Yeah, well, maybe that was the other earlier play. The, the, Von El Cavanya was did, after Day But of the he Dolphin. did fire him, though. Yeah. But oh boy, it, you, George, talk about George, talk about uh, stories on George C. Scott. You get some really juicy stuff. Uh, uh, not only there's a there's some interviews in the Day of the Dolphin uh, disc, and then the book. You can get some really interesting. Did things. you hear a story? I, it's not from the Nichols book, but I heard, maybe it was from Life Isn't Everything. But I just heard this one of like uh, Scott going off on. Um, he went off on a fellow actor and then came back crying after having gone. Yeah, that's like I think that's I think that's in the book. And there's also the one where he he has a party where everybody's on this boat. On the boat. And he's that's like, the day of the dolphin. Yeah, yeah, and, and he's and, like, well, let's 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 abandon this production. Yeah, and he and he and then doesn't let anybody go till four a.m. in the morning. <laughs> mm. <laughs> um, the favorite line Nichols was pretty harsh on um, Ernest Lehman, uh, who wrote North by Northwest and uh, was. He basically just used Edward Albee's script. Yeah, with, like they had really, to cut out. Albee was very happy with it. He, he, he goes, "Yeah, I've know. heard alternating versions of that." But Nichols on the commentary says he thinks Albee was ultimately happy with it and complained about the Alex Norse score. Yeah, Albee on and the disc. There's an interview with Albee on the disc that uh, that says he was. Yeah, he was uh, because you know most of the 
most I, you know I always hear writers just like oh they just they're just disgusted what the movie does to their plays and, and uh, I think Albie was actually sort of happy with this one. Lehman would probably be credited with the opening up uh, them going to the the diner which they talk a lot about and or the bar which they do talk about in the commentary. But a lot of the stories they always give push Lehman's ways are the things of like the um, the dogs having sex or the uh, uh, the kid really having been real and committed suicide which that was an earlier draft they all cut out. Like that, that gets attributed to him. Like Lehman's problem was that, like he he, ba- this project was his baby, and he, I, everything Nichols else. got rid of him basically, or just stopped paying attention to him after a certain point. Like there was that yeah. famous conversation about the uh, the glasses for for Richard Burton, and like they eventually came to the like he asked Lehman asked uh, Nichols, well, if we get close to shooting and I want the glasses and you don't, what do we do then? And Nichols says, well, I'll kill you. <laughs> well, yeah, I should mention too that. Uh, um, that Nichols saw the play, you know, on his original run, and it just it just thunderstruck him. Yeah, he said he had he, a great attachment to it. It just he he just could not. Uh, it was a, it was a life changing moment for him, and and so that was well. He when it came time that he had a chance to do the film, he had. I to think do this that. is in the book, but he talks about in the commentary that the play had a laugh every twenty seconds, and in the book he had to commit to not making the movie as funny. Does that sound familiar? Maybe taking a little humor out of. This, or, or this, at least not playing maybe, for humor. Maybe uh, his well, his point was again. He he had to cut his favorite line, which was abstruse in the sense of recondite. Which <laughs> go to your thesaurus. Is uh, anyone listening to it right now? Um, such a uh, uh, such a smart person. Him and Elaine. I I I can't imagine for a year on their Broadway show, the, they would end the show. Say, throw us out a line, throw us out at what style to do it in. I mean, have you seen good improv? Uh, what's that? Have you seen good improv? Uh, I'm not sure. I have to think about that. But to do that for a year. Yeah. And, you know, okay, uh, you know, babies in water and do it in Shakespeare. You know, and it's like. Some of that, the style they talked about, like uh, uh, to do it in version of T.S. Eliot or do a Tennessee Williams, although they had the Tennessee Williams parody already there. Yeah, some of that stuff is like, but I mean like improv is like, there's a cottage industry that they, to your credit, as you mentioned earlier with the SNL stuff, they develop. But I mean like anyone who goes to UCB right now listening to this or Second City or, or, or uh, Improv Olympic or something like that understands like there's there's definitely successful ways that you could do it for a year, but they were some of the big first ones. Although anyone from the Compass Theater or Second City eventually also would probably, Del Close mentioned. Uh, in that script, uh, When in Doubt Seduce, there's, a re- there's some really touching exchanges when they're talking about when they love each other, but they're not going to be a couple, where they keep talking about to each other that you're the smartest person I've ever met. And they, that, that's like their way of saying I love you to each other. It's really... It's really touching in the script. Do you uh, what do you take of uh, what do you make of uh, George Siegel and Sandy Dennis performances? Well, uh, that was the part that he originally wanted. George Siegel wanted Redford for, and Redford thought it was a small part. Um, there was a line I just read in the Osteen book that because um, in the commentary they talk, uh, Soderbergh asks him pretty bluntly, "What is it about making characters uh, play drunk? How is it the best way?" And Nichols just says, "Ignore it. Don't do it." Osteen points out Siegel was playing drunk and Burton wasn't playing drunk. And I mean, not literally, but when you see their performances hmm. on screen, yeah. Siegel, they, they work. Sandy Dennis, didn't she, I, I don't think this is mentioned in any of the books or in the commentary. She had a, she was pregnant during the shooting and had a miscarriage. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. Um. 
Why? What do you think? No, I, I just it's it, it's curious to me. I, I'd never have been able to get a. Uh, I've never been able to get a strong attachment, uh, strong observation on George Siegel. He's a, he's a really interesting guy, right. and he's got and his career is really interesting. Uh, this is a big interesting role, and he came from some uh, some big Broadway shows that yeah. Nicholas was casting in, but. Um, but originally, Melinda Dillon from um, uh, Close Encounters yes. and uh, um, and Magnolia uh, was played this on stage, and, they, and Nichols talked about the fact that like you need a comedian to play this this, this role because there's a big chunk of it that's annoying. Yeah, and that that's a that's that, that's the one sad aspect I have. But, but mainly reading the the, the Harris book is, uh, uh, I mean, I, I, and I, I don't get that the wrong way, but it's sad because. You read about all these great plays with these great actors, and I'm just like, oh, I would want to see that. I want to be yeah. there. I want to take, you know. And I, I guess you know, we have a good uh, University of Evansville is has always had a great reputation, and I should probably, you know, be more uh, active watching our USI and U of E plays. But I don't, I don't, you know, it's 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 college actors, you know, and nothing, nothing. You know, no, no, no. I, I you, ta- I literally watched a Zoom play uh, Friday night from UE. Like they've been showing, putting plays yeah, up on but Zoom, it's but just... it's, it's they're solid. But there's something about like the book keeps talking about these le- supposedly legendary performances. There's this great uh, uh, exchange in that script where I don't know if this is a real Mike Nichols story, but when he was a kid, he saved up because he wanted to see Olivier play. I think it was Hamlet on, or it was Olivier playing Shakespeare on stage. And Nichols paid a ton of money, and when he got here, there, that was the day Olivier's day off, and they had the understudy. Oh man! <laughs> speaking of uh, speaking of Olivier, I love uh, there's in the commentary again. The reason that you listen to these commentaries, but Soderbergh and, and the director of uh, Nichols talking. Uh, Mike talks about that crying scene, Richard Burton crying, scene, and he goes, uh, and Richard goes, uh, uh, he goes, I, I can't do it that way because Larry already did it that way, and 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 then he went, Larry. Oh, Lawrence did. So he had to find another way to cry because he, he didn't want to repeat the way that Olivia yeah. had cried. There, there, I, there's a, anybody appreciating, I think this has been well gone over, but people living in New York don't appreciate what they have. And oh I mean, to be gosh. fair, it's expensive and like season, season subscriber holders or, you know, the, the fact that Broadway's too expensive that the average person can't see much less. Oh, like, it, it plays to the whole tourist part of New York that people have to come in to see it, but these great performances, yeah, they're, they're a miss. But well, there was also, I wanted to point out, um, Nichols has this great description of things that are good on stage that you can't do in a movie, and he talks about when a movie plays bad, the last actor that shows up in that play is a depressing moment because he feels like this this play is not going to show him anything else after that point once you know what the performances are in the last actor but in a movie you can cut to anything and anything can happen <laughs> yeah uh, but yeah I, but yeah being a new york i i, was, I just uh, just on a personal take I, I i get a chance to spend almost i think it was close to a week in new york in 1980 uh, 1980 uh, yeah it was right before uh, lennon was shot I was there. Thanksgiving it was Thanksgiving week, and uh, I took. I, I made it. I made a. I, you know, I could have gone. I could have stayed with more movies. A comic book convention was going on at the time, and uh, and bookstores, and just gone crazy on that alone. My 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 strengths uh, and what mm-hmm. I like. But I, I I went out of my way to see uh, three stage performances. What'd you see? 
I saw uh, Chorus Line was strong at the time. Saw Chorus Line. I don't know. Do if you remember? Do, was anybody? In that I, see, I don't know. I don't know. If, I, I don't think. They, I think. It, I think all the biggies. If uh, whoever started Chorus Line was not there, I'd be curious. I guess I need to check who was in the, that one. Maybe there was Chorus somebody. Line. Um, uh, Elephant Man with David Bowie. Oh, I, I can't remember if you've told me about this before. Yeah, so Elephant Man with David Bowie. Oh, man. I thought, I was probably going to say I saw a third one. Maybe I didn't. I did go to a retro theater and saw Monsieur Verdot on the big screen for the okay. first time. And I also that saw... A movie. That's a movie. That's not a play I know. <laughs> and, the, and The Marriage of Maria Braun uh, uh, to get a fourth oh, film, okay. a Fossbender okay. film. So I, uh, I, I made a... I made a uh, uh, a definite plan to take in every aspect of New York and not just you know just stay with movies or stay with whatever you know. Mm-hmm. So and I was very happy that uh, I thought I saw a third play, but maybe I didn't. I can't. But yeah, Chorus Line and, and the Elephant Man. Nichols has a great quote uh, towards the end of this commentary about what Elaine May taught him about acting, and it's um, Elaine May taught him that an actor needs to be inside and outside a person at the same time. That like you need to be showing a person's flaws but also being them at the same time to show empathy about them too herbert ross choreographed the dance <laughs> herbert yeah. ross director of pennies from heaven amongst so many well, uh, did he uh I, am i wrong footloose is that herbert yeah yeah uh sunshine boys yeah. uh, I, I, uh steel magnolias i think that sounds spot right. but he came from broadway and yeah. he was a choreographer but he choreographed choreographed the dance yeah, there's like yeah, there's like a little interesting people that came out. Like Schumacher came out and worked his way up into uh, being a director uh, and mm. interesting chores. We're um, planning on doing a Bob Fosse episode coming up soon. Fosse, Fosse, Fosse. But <laughs> you worked it around to Nichols. Um, the uh, back to Osteen stuff. The uh, one of the ways I guess Osteen ingratiated himself to Nichols was that into this technique for editors that. I personally hate, but I'll do it. It's basically have a dial the job of a dialogue editor. You make an edit, normal editor doing it. And what you do is you take syllables and vowels from other line readings in the movie and you put them together to take make up completely new lines or new readings of words. And Richard Burton apparently mispronounced some Latin throughout the movie, so Steen would do that. Would put together that we when I. Uh, I, we, one place I worked at, we used to call them Frankenbiting because it was taking the term soundbiting and Frankenstein and combining the two. Another thing we should talk about, oh, we, we have mentioned uh, Mr. Wexler. We haven't talked about Haskell uh, Wexler. Who's always, uh, he's a handful. They made a he, big deal he, about this being his first movie, but he did America, America for Elia Kazan, right? I think so. Did, uh, yeah. Sounds right. But you know, he's, uh, he, 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 he comes across every time I see him in an interview or, uh, I don't think I've listened to the commentary, but there, by the way, there's a secondary commentary. Yeah. yeah with him. Oh, with yeah, him. I, haven't, I haven't listened to that. Uh, but he's always, it seems like he'd be a handful to work with. And, uh, the, uh, he's, you know, uh, I think, I, I mean, Nichols had the problem just because he he took a long time, I think, and uh, he then would dictate stuff to Osteen on how to cut because of it. And you get to hear things like, uh, "Oh, that's interesting." Uh, he would tie. Uh, he had to do a scene where Sandy's dancing around and around, circling around and around. So in order to do it right, you put a tie to rope uh, to her. To yeah. Him, okay. And yeah. Then, and would circle around, which was nice to hear. See that? Oh, okay. But the really, I thought the really interesting one was was you know Burton. Uh, he said that. Uh, uh, 
Sauter, uh, Nichols said that Burton had, had a, b- a bad habit of forgetting lines. And mm-hmm. if he had a long monologue to do, it would it, it was hard to get that. I wanted that. to go over the shot. We're going to talk right. about the shot. Okay. So, right. So they're outside. George Siegel and him are talking. And it's, it involves a long monologue with Richard Burton. He got through it. He got a take. And, he, and it's, yeah, we got it. And uh, Soderbergh, uh, Nichols is very happy about it. And they go to dailies. They go to dailies. <laughs> And he had the wrong, uh, what do you call it? Uh, it's eight stops off, which oh, is, is significant. <laughs> that is, is significant. It was like a nuclear holocaust was going off by or something. when he's describing the shot, this shot's described in the book. And when I thought about it, I was like, man, that's, because what's going to happen is you're going to see the is a black and white movie in particular. You're just going to see very oversaturated blacks or something like that on it. But when you watch the shot, Soderbergh can't even tell. Yeah, well, it was funny. It was funny. I think even Soderbergh was coming how good that scene looked. I think he said. I he think does. he was like, he's like, oh, it was like, and then Nichols had to go. Well, it was actually, yeah. <laughs> and that's another because Nichols, Nichols uses the phrase, "It's like high noon. We shot in high noon." <laughs> and so it's like it's again, it's like the like the the, the plane explosion and Catch Twenty Two commentary. It's one of those uh, magic moments in the commentary that you don't get a lot of commentaries. You get these magic nuggets that you just go, oh, wow, can you believe that that they they pulled that off? You, you know? one other little tiny thing. This, I think okay, so. Catch-22, I'm sure, was a commentary that was recorded around 2000, 2001, and it came out on a 2001 disc. I Then Graduate Commentary is dated as 2007 on the Criterion disc. Uh, the last line of the Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf one says, this it was with the, he talks in terms of 2007 because he mentioned shooting Charlie Wilson's war, or he references shooting Charlie Wilson's war. Uh he says two times for two films, twenty to go. Meaning they've probably just got Catch Twenty Two and Who's Afraid of Virginia Wolf. I think they probably got Graduate and Who's Afraid of Virginia Wolf at the same time for this. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Could you imagine uh, again, like for the Catch Twenty Two? It would be great to hear the commentary on the Fortune and Day of the Dolphin. Uh, yeah, uh, even more so than the successful ones. I know? mentioned this to you when we were talking about doing this episode in the Harris book. He, the whenever it came time for Nichols to have a career retrospective, he said everything except uh, was it the Fortune, Wolf, and Day of the Dolphin. I think, and he got talked into putting the Fortune. And then like the whoever made him watch the Fortune, at least they appreciated. It. I'm not sure Nichols actually appreciated it. That also was available on Amazon Prime to watch, and I another one I'm meaning to. Revisit, but the point I was gonna make about the black and white cinematography on this commentary, and the date it being two thousand seven, you get to hear Mike Nichols talk about. Oh, I watched Sin City on the plane. Oh yeah, that was that was uh, uh, that that was a uh, really uh, crazy to hear that. Uh, so uh, the name drop Nate Sin City of all films. You know, he just and of course it, he, he the reason. I, I don't see Mike Nichols going out of his way to see that movie, but it makes sense he's seen it on a plane. He's stuck there, so that's that sounds yeah. that sounds about right. Um, the I guess maybe we should start to wind down. Um, the what one of the my favorite lines in this, um, Nichols brings this up, but it's also what's fascinating to me is also a, a Lim Dobbs line. Lim Dobbs, who wrote the Limey and had a great commentary with Soderbergh, where they fought with each other they both agree it's not the specific line but the basic idea is that every movie you work on every story you see should be the most important moment in these characters lives and Nichols makes the point of saying that the character changes is important I found it a fascinating line I've never 100% agreed with it I think that some like for starters it just invalidates movies with good sequels but (laughs) 
<laughs> just just on a practical level, like every people's lives are filled with stories. People feel their lives are filled with momentous events. Like with a, a, you know, a whole life doesn't have just peak in one moment. I mean, I get it. Like it's 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 a way of of like focusing on stakes for your stories, and especially for playing it, it makes sense to do it. But I'm just not trying to sure I agree with it. Hmm. That's, did the uh... The easy, the easy Riders Raging Bull book. Did, does Nichols get much play in that? I believe so. I, it's been, I can't. It's been a I have time. to. What do you? Uh, so, in summing up, and as we're closing down here, I was. This is another thing I was grappling with. Where, uh, where does Mike Nichols fit into this? Because you, you know, we get we we talk about the movie brats. You know, you talk about the Scorsese and De Palma, Milius and Coppola, and uh, you know all these guys, Schrader, and. Uh, where does he fit into this? Because uh, he, uh, even you know Altman and Kubrick get uh, kind of shoved in there somewhat, but uh, Mike seems to be a little bit different uh, trajectory in a way. Part of the reason I'm surprised that it wasn't you and I that had the conversation about the long takes is uh, I think another aspect of the conversation is that he was visual and he was less visual and he learned to cut. Yeah. And uh, you know he was he had budgets that he no no longer commanded and I I mean when I think about Silkwood Silkwood I think about Charlie Wilson's War I think about Primary Colors I I I I feel like I'm getting a lot of good story and character I don't think about style I agree and whereas you know when I, I watch Graduate you get both a little yeah. bit or so that's kind of interesting but but there's nothing wrong with that I mean it, you know that's just that's, that's I, I think there's an argument that that's more um, direct storytelling yeah. it's, it's less like tap dancing but, um, but I I mean the problem is is he peaks the the early two successes then go into movies what's funny we we were talking about this before we started recording. Catch Twenty Two works for me, and it seems like it works for you. Yeah. But it was treated as a failure. Where does he go from there? Yeah, Carnal yeah. Knowledge. Carnal Knowledge, a movie yeah, everyone he, kind of and, around and, 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 and a good friend, Jules Pfeiffer. Not only you know, uh, well, when Jules Pfeiffer saw uh, Nicholson May, he's like, they're doing what I do in my my Village Voice comic strip, and he became a big fan and friend. Big fan because you think about it, you, that's all the 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 main thing of Jules Pfeiffer's the main thing he's known for are people talking about the social mores mm. in his strip, you know, mm-hmm. which is what Elaine and and uh, Elaine and Michael tapping into with right. their improv. Yeah. So they were so they were a match made in heaven. So that carnal knowledge came together. Come came together. Well, that. my point was he still made one good movie, at least uh, indisputably good movie that everyone got on board with before he. Uh, yeah, and and I, 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 they the dolphin and the fortunate are not write offs, you know, right. in any way, uh, as opposed to some other stuff that you would want. And the book details little things like uh, Goodbye Girl, where which was originally <laughs> supposed to have De Niro in it, and he was directing. Bogart it. never sleeps here or something. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. They, yeah. They, Neil they, Simon. Got a, uh, uh, in fact, that's a good story too. Uh, Harris, uh, uh, where he goes, uh, he's three days. There, there's several days in the filming. They're actually filming right. the dang, the dang thing, and then somebody says, "Well, just shut it down." And Michael's, "You can do that." Yeah. <laughs> Has an endless amount of relief from it, from it, and then ends up not directing a movie for like. And and Harris makes a big point about Silkwood is at top of my Netflix queue right now, but it's a movie that you can't find any streaming services or anywhere just because of music rights. And mm-hmm. I, I forget which studio ended up putting it's it. It's a nice out. Blu-ray out on it. Is there? Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, I've I never seen. It. I really want to see. It. And he said it was one of Nichols' best movies. I really want to see it. I don't think it, yeah, this struck me the day as I was getting ready to come over here uh, to record. Uh, I. I was thinking about old man movies. 
you know, and you know, and, and you know, you know, Quentin Tarantino, you know, Quentin says, I don't want to be one of those guys that has gone past his due date and did not make, you know, I'm going to do two, what one, he's going to do two more and that's it. Or one more, one more. And then, you know, and then, uh, you get, a you know, you look at Howard Hawks and John Ford and Hitchcock and some of these guys, uh, Billy Wilder, you know, uh, buddy, buddy is his last film. Right. Uh, you, you look at these guys and you're just like, uh, they maybe something lost something or it's an age or what, but then you want to call bullshit when it comes to Mike Nichols. Well, you know, there's art, you know, there's Lamat, you know, it was another one that w- it was making good films all the way to his death. Probably Altman. And, uh, and uh, Clint, you know, look at what Clint's doing. Uh, I mean, I know it's, it's debatable, but it's still, oh, you just, you just took your point and just like <laughs> took it down. No, 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 no. I, I there. Well, lately, I, I don't know. Hopefully that he's, he's got another one done. He's still, uh, uh, but, but, but anyway, uh, Charlie Wilson's War and and uh, he Aaron uh, Sorkin script and yeah and I, th- I think he probably would have done some more if he lived longer. You know what's fascinating is uh, my problem with Charlie Wilson's War because I was a big fan of the original version of the script that had leaked and I'd read it before. So this was that period in the late uh, aughts where I was reading every script that had leaked, especially Sorkin ones. Um, I found out that my problem with it, Sorkin and Nichols were on the good side of the script and Playtone and Tom Hanks were on this, the version we saw that bummed me out. There's this amazing monologue at the end of the script where it ties up Charlie Wilson's actions basically is like planting the seeds for 9-11. Hmm. Because, I mean, it's, you know, he's yeah. finning, planning, giving money to the Taliban and it culminates in this amazing line where... Um, Philip Seymour Hoffman's character is yelling at Charlie Wilson and he said, we just taught them how to fuck with a superpower. <laughs> it's such an amazing ending and it's a great argument speech. And and then in the movie, it just kind of peters out. I think there's a shot. It jumps to 2001. He kind of looks at it. And, and Tom Hanks' argument, which is detailed in the Harris book, was just like, look, I don't think we tested both versions. I don't think we did enough to say that, like, Charlie Wilson birthed 9-11. But... Yeah. Sure, maybe, especially if you want to respect the book and you want to respect the real person, but on the page, and I'm sh- like, it's so much was more impactful and worked better. And we, and we come full circle. We start talking about Jodie Foster film with, with a, a detainee and get well. <laughs> and they, they talk, they show scenes of, uh, of, the Charlie Wilson era. I, 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 to your point, less Charlie Wilson's war, but the great thing about, as you mentioned earlier, the Mark Harris book is about all stage work that uh, oh, yeah, Mike you Nichols that did. Too. And yeah. Mike Nichols, like, uh, Betrayal was his last one, which he was barely there for. He did a Harold Pintle revival, with, but the one before that was he did uh, his great version of Death of a Salesman with Philip Seymour Hoffman and Andrew Garfield, where they reused the, or, or recreated the original Elia Kazan set from the original version Ooh, yeah. and it, it was his last Tony win and to be fair Nichols half of the work he did was backing off and letting Philip Seymour Hoffman figure out some stuff just because Nichols health was really kicking in I, I see me I'm ready in the book I'm gonna yeah I'm yeah well no but you're exposing me I I was telling Shane earlier I would have this book done already, but I'm I'm slowed down because I just I'm enjoying it so much. I don't want to fi- I don't want it to finish. You're so much smarter than me in that regard, Ted. But uh, he he went out at the like he 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 had a he had a bad cough at the end, and so he had to like miss rehearsals just because he was disturbing coughs. And like in the sadder part, they talk about the end of the book is like because uh, even on the commentary he talks about um, uh, Martin McDonough play uh, uh, the, who's afraid of Virginia Woolf. He talks about just seeing a Martin McDonough play on Broadway. I forget he mentioned some other. 
play he just seemed like they talk about how like he was constantly excited by something new I mean oh, young he loved to, the youth yeah. towards the end of his life one of the last things he did was uh, I think in some of the last weeks of his life was he went to an early uh, test version of Hamilton when Lin-Manuel Miranda uh, invited him to see what it would have would it, just an earlier version of it before to get it off the ground. He was constantly excited by the young and all the way until open to it, open to it. Yeah. And yeah. Not, not shut down. And, uh, I, I, you know, uh, not to curtail this, this point we're making right now, but I, I, I don't, don't, wouldn't you have loved, I wonder if it's recorded. Do you know, to see the Elaine May, Mike Nichols version of Virginia Woolf, them performing. Oh man, actually, you're you're making an interesting point. I forgot to break up. Like I know we're winding down, but I keep this. We're, we're there's a lot. Be so mer- much. Then, merciful, we got this. This, this could be a multi part. One of the things that isn't in the Harris book, but is in life, isn't everything, is Nichols as an actor. Yeah played a part in this play called Designated Mourner, written by Wallace Shawn. And apparently it, it's available on DVD. Yeah, no, no, it, it, it's directed by David Hare. Life Isn't Everything dictate, uh, uh, tells more about what happened, where Nichols didn't want the that version going out, but it did anyway. Meryl Streep said, Meryl Streep and, and Christopher Walken flew to London to see this. He was only going to do it in London. They wanted to bring it to Broadway, <laughs> but he wouldn't allow it. But Meryl Streep said it was one of the finest pieces of acting she's ever seen a man do. That's high praise, isn't it? Very high praise. Yeah. So I, yeah, but I would just you know because I'm right now I'm just rabid about uh, uh, Nicholson May and, and more so May. So I want to see. I would love to see that that performance of them two together as right. George and Martha. Just, they have the pictures in the book, and like that's. Yeah. that's I, I don't know. It, you know, th- there's always a possibility that it's recorded, but it is that sitting somewhere. On a he show. talks about on the Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf commentary. He talks about the uh, tree scene, the monologue there. Like that was a monologue he liked to do when he played the part. Yeah. Um, we could go on, and we have, but you you've already mentioned the the, the virtues of the commentaries. Like yeah, the, yeah. Again, I I I've, when the commentary started up on Laserdisc era, and then they continued obviously now. Now it's crazy. Kino Lober, uh, they got like two three guys. Howard Berger, Steve Mitchell. They have these. They almost had a crew ready to go. I, I'm I'm upset now because they're almost slapping a commentary, no matter uh, if it's worthy of a commentary or not and uh, they put out the, oh you're gonna kill me for this they, they they had a they put a ton of literature lesters out with nothing and uh, they got some there's some people that can really do great commentaries of Lester mm-hmm. so uh, these these commentaries are really worth checking out uh, the right people uh, I think Tarantino was praising some people uh, commentaries recently on a podcast mm-hmm. uh, former guest Tim Lucas Tim Lucas uh, and uh, and the um, Tim brings some interesting uh, uh, insights and stuff. So, but the Soderbergh thing, uh, the Soderberghs are just a master class. They're master classes in a way, in their they own are. way. Uh, I know there's that whole series. Uh, and in the book, we can't, I can't, I think Shane and I can't praise the book enough. Yeah. Uh, I, I can't, what's this next book? I forgot. Uh, is it mentioned? What you, I, I, I didn't know think, there was a mention of the next book. I, uh, uh, I didn't know there was. I know. I don't. I think he. I thought. I think he's working on something, but I don't think he. He would reveal it. I think. Okay. So, oh, that's that's but, promising. Um, yeah. I I go back to the original reason we wanted to do this episode was that these book kept pointing out that Nichols, Mike. Oh, I know one story I wanted to tell. Sure. Lane May. Had, have you ever seen the uh Ken, his uh, Kennedy Center? I think it is. I mean, not not his Kennedy Center, but no, his AFI uh, uh Lifetime Achievement mm-hmm. Dinner. Have you seen that? I probably did back when it first aired. There's this. Really? Oh, Lane's? 
Yeah. Talk. Yeah. So yeah, her. The reason we wanted to do this was I think these commentaries are our best resource of um, hearing Mike Nichols tell stories because he directed by telling stories, and Elaine May gives us. In the print the legend version, Mike Nichols says his cousin was Albert Einstein. Yeah. And Elaine May tells this hilarious story of uh, <laughs> being in Mike Nichols' apartment and coming across a Guggenheim Bible and opening up a letter from Albert Einstein to, what was his nickname for Young Feet? Oh. Young the, Igor. Young Igor. Igor, yeah. Yeah. That's, that that's, was Elaine May's nickname for Mike Nichols, Young, uh, young Igor. He said a letter to young Igor, and Albert Einstein was like, I can't figure out how to get across uh, E equals MC square or energy equals mass or my mathematics and physics knowledge not being able to recreate this. And he talks about Mike Nichols, little Igor, eating one pea at a time and saying, well, just imagine you look at this little girl on a train looking out longingly, and then there's a boy on a train out the window, looking back at her, equally longingly, and they see each other, and they don't realize that both trains are in motion at the same time. And uh, Elaine May loses the house when she says, uh, Albert Einstein wrote, that's when I realize I should stick with physics because I can't do directing. Yeah, I guess that's that's going to be it for this episode, Ted. Yep, that sounds good. All right. Thanks, everybody, for listening for this long, long episode. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. Adios. Adios. Adios.